Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Good morning, everyone. You're on Reality Check Radio, and it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, we've got a treat coming up this afternoon, uh, this morning. Oh, can't get my mornings and afternoons right. We've got a lovely uh, guests coming up. We've got uh, Prof. Elizabeth Rata. Uh, but first, we've got Erica Harvey, who is a candidate uh, for New Zealand First in the coming election, and who is a very, very interesting person. So we're interviewing her, and then a favourite of listeners, Prof Rata, on the two treaties that we're having to deal with. And remember, you can text me, inbox at reallycheck.radio, and text me 2057. Lovely to have you along. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought alternative thought and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information can make of it what they will that is the mission it's a good mission thanks for tuning in to rcr reality check radio if you like what you're listening to or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to then get in touch with us now You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Well... We've got someone coming on the show. We're not going to, we're just going to, no further ado, we're just going to introduce her. Good morning, Erica Harvey. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. Do you know, (laughs) you must have special skills. Why do you say that? Because I have no idea who you are. (laughs) I have no idea why I'm interviewing. Other than this, I have these three ladies who help me and look after me. They sort of rotate. I'm very lucky. I think Hoover gets a short straw and has to help me that week. <laughs> and they've said, oh, my goodness, you've got to have Erica on. And here you are. Here so I I'm am. going to explore it. Now, I detect an American accent. Yes, you're right. You're from the United States of America. Yes, I am. Do you know I regard the United States of America as the greatest country on earth? Do you? I do. Oh. I don't believe that there has ever been a greater country. Wow. I don't believe that there's ever been a greater history of a country. 
anyway, tell me, you where did you where where did you grow up in in Tennessee? I don't know much of the state. So I grew up. Uh, I was actually born up north, like in New Jersey. Um, but when I was really young, my family moved down to Tennessee in a place called Chattanooga. Chattanooga, which, what a name! Yeah, which ironically, when I met my husband, who's um, from Tauranga, his dad. When I first met him, he was like Chattanooga, and he knew the Chattanooga Choo Choo song. Yeah, yeah, everyone does. And I had no idea. Pardon that me, Roy. That's it. <laughs> I actually used to sing. So the Chattanooga Choo Choo now is like a restaurant, and the train's still there. And so when I was growing up, um, my one of my first jobs was a singing waitress at the Chattanooga Choo Choo. <laughs> How about that? You're famous. I should have known about you before you came on my show. So what happened to your music? Uh, well, I found a lump in my neck and I had gone to the doctor for it, but they said, because of my age, I think at the time I found it, I was 24 and they said, look, because of your age, it's probably nothing. It's probably a thyroid goiter. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And they said, oh, you probably won't need anything about it. And then my, as I was singing, my voice started to change and I just felt like something was wrong. And so, uh, I was about 26 and I wanted going back to the doctor and just saying, Hey, look for my own peace of mind. Can you biopsy it? And they tried to talk me out of it because quite painful. <laughs> um, and I did some blood tests and I remember my bloods came back and I was talking to my dad and my dad was like, you know, looking them up somewhere. And he was a bit concerned about some of the bloods and I had gotten this biopsy and the guy had said to me, hey, look, there's a want and a need. You're either going to want to get it out just because, you know, it looked if I tilted my neck, you could see it um, or you're going to need. He's like, but you probably won't need to get it out. I'm sure it's nothing. And so I remember I was at, I was working at Dell and yeah, my phone rang and I answered the phone and um, he told me over the phone while I was at work and he just said, Hey, Erica, do you remember the want and the need? I was like, yeah. He's like, you're going to need. And I was like, what? And he's like, you've got cancer. And I was like, oh, huh? And it just, he told me over the phone while I was at work and I just remember my uh, my husband, Dan, was in New Zealand. And I just remember ringing him saying like, and it happened to be April Fool's Day in New Zealand. Oh, dear. And so oh, dear. I'm trying to call him and tell him. And he's like, is this a joke? And I was like, this is a terrible joke. <laughs> you know, and um, so anyway, he got on a plane and um, he yeah, flew back to the States. And we went and saw my oncologist and... Yeah, they wound up, um, the surgery was quite intense. So I've got a big scar all the way around my neck and um, they had to remove 54 lymph nodes out of my face. So I get a lot of lymphedema where I get fluid buildup in my face, depending on, you know, if I'm supposed to be jumping on this trampoline, but I've been pregnant. <laughs> so I couldn't really do that. So I, I can see why, I can see why I had to you got a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know you had that many lymph nodes, let alone you could have them removed and still stand up. Yeah. Yeah, so it's all just means that fluid just can build up there. So you've got to, if you walk a lot or moving, but like obviously when it's cold in the winter time, or you know, or you're pregnant or whatever. Um, yeah. So anyway, they removed it. I was quite lucky. They are you thought, pregnant now? No, he's four months old. I just had the baby <laughs> during this all. Basically, I had the baby in May, um, and yeah, went straight into campaign time. I wasn't going to run in this election, um, but. My husband and I oh, we're going to come to the election. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still going to come to the election because this is amazing to me that you're doing this. So, um, 
And the cancer all went when they cut all your lymph nodes off? Yeah, so um, yeah, they took it all out. They cut so many out because they were looking for clear margins. They had thought that it would have spread because of the misdiagnosis the first time, but um, and they took them out as a precaution, but they were all clean. So I had clean margins. Um, and yeah, so I just I have to get checked. I get my bloods done all the time and and things like that. So, but my voice changed, and obviously after you have a significant surgery in your throat, um, yeah, I mean my my singing voice isn't what it was at all. I mean, I'm a, you know, decent, probably karaoke singer now, but before I was like, you know, a real singer. <laughs> Erica, you got into politics because of your daughter. How did that happen? Uh, it was, it's quite interesting. Um, so I was working for a big corporate um, called, uh, called Gartner. So we did like um, IT research and advisory services for some of New Zealand's like largest companies. And when she was going through the process and once she was diagnosed, um, I left that my corporate job um, just so I could be home with her because I now started to realize that she would actually need a lot more help and focus. And I thought she was diagnosed quite young. So she was two years old when we got her Oh, diagnosis. really? Yeah. Oh, really? Because normally, you know, people can be quite even adults. Yeah. Well, hers, it, it was a quite a sad story to be fair. Um, she developed fine like every other child. And then uh, she got sick and wound up in the hospital that happened. And um, I was going to say that happened twice. Um, and the second time she had changed quite a lot, but we thought that, um, that the change was just her, you know, getting over, you know, being unwell. And um and then I slowly started to notice things like her eyes had gone inward. And I tell the story about how it's quite sad. It feels like one day you go to bed and then you wake up and the kid that you had has been gone and replaced with a different child. Um, and not that the, the child was, you know, better or worse, either child, but just that, you know, she never spoke again. Uh, she started to have violent outbursts. She was smashing her head on the concrete. Um any type of lights would bother her. Um, she, like her eyesight, her eyes had gone inward. And I just started to notice all these different things. And I remember talking to my dad and he just said, you know, have you, have you thought about autism? He's like, I hate to say that, you know, I don't want to. And I just said, I actually have. So I started that process and because I was traveling a lot with my job and stuff and my husband um, is a fisherman. <laughs> so our life was was quite um, hard because we both were quite busy. Um, so I wound up leaving that corporate job and just focusing on on Piper going through that, that process of finding out. And I remember um, my husband saying to me, oh, Erica, you know, she doesn't have, she doesn't have autism. You know, she's very similar to me. I'm quite awkward. And, and, um, he goes, how bad will it feel if you find out that she's actually just fine? And I just thought, well, it won't feel bad at all <laughs> because I just want to make sure that I'm doing everything mm -hmm. I can. And um, I remember sitting in the specialist appointment that I had to make. And um, he says to me, uh, I calls another boy from outside and the boy comes in and he's like, you know, I'll call him Tommy. Hey, Tommy. Tommy's like, yeah. He's like, what'd you do this weekend? And Tommy tells him, you know, in like a little you know kids voice of what they've done and uh he's like okay all right thanks and he and then tommy leaves so then piper's playing in the corner and and i said i don't think she has autism because when i speak she looks at me and i heard that kids with autism don't look at you 
And she looks at me and he goes, let me show you the difference. And he's like, hey, Piper. And she looks at him. And then she goes back to playing. And, um, and then he talks to her again. And he says, she looks at you because you make a noise. And I was like, what? He's like, she's not genuinely engaging like Tommy did. And I just remember thinking, oh God. Because this whole time I kind of thought maybe she didn't because she was looking at me when I would talk to her. So I remember um, he says, look, she's, I'm pretty sure she is. But what we do is we send, refer them to an MDAT team, which is a team in the hospital and it's a speech and language therapist and all the stuff. And then they work together and jointly come up with a diagnosis. And so I come, came home to my, I remember putting her in the car and I was just staring at her in the back seat. It makes me quite emotional every time I talk about it because I remember it so well. And I just remember saying to her, Piper, look at me, look at me, you know, like, come on. And um, cause she used to look at me. And um, yeah, she didn't. She just would say zika 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 zika, and um, called my husband, and I just said, oh, "I think she has autism." And I'm like, "And I don't know what this means, but I know that it means she's going to need a lot of help, and we've got to figure out how to how to communicate to her." And so I had to leave my job, and um, and that was quite hard because we had just bought our first house, and um, I was the main earner at the time, and so it was quite stressful and scary. So we started our own business and um, to better look after our daughter so we could be more flexible. I was going through a lot of therapies with her and, you know, just for us to try to figure out how to get her to speak because a lot of her issues were she, her diagnosis came back that she was nonverbal autism, mm -hmm. that she had dyspraxia, global development delay, and, um, and then later something called PDA, which is pathological demand avoidance, which is a tricky piece because it means basically that she takes anything as a demand. So if I said, get your shoes, she would have a huge meltdown and it would just be, her whole day would just be like, our whole day would be off. But if I said, hey, do you know where your shoes are? <laughs> totally different response. So it's about learning how to change uh, how you're asking things and how you're actually parenting. So it was a big learning curve. So we started our new company. Um, we were doing really cool stuff, long line fishing, um, selling fish to like Michelin star restaurants. And we had big chefs coming from all over the world uh, to Toranga. My husband was taking them fishing. They were doing amazing cooking videos. And it was a really cool, sustainable, like awesome company. We, we loved it. And then the city council um, decided to um, sell off this area called the Marine Precinct. And they gave, put out a memorandum. And in the memorandum, it said that they would be building all of these facilities for um, the marine industry so that they didn't have to purchase land. And so we were basically told we didn't have to purchase any land in this development sale to operate. And I started working. And I remember my husband coming home and he's like, man, the space is really small. And he puts this document on the table. And I looked at the document and I thought, well, this is weird. There's not enough space in that area to do all of these things. Like that's impossible. So I started to like look into it and um, go down, you know, go down to the the precinct and was asking questions. We were having meetings with council and, you know, then they had something like a travel lift and that actually was against the, t the way that the tidal flow was and there was no bumpers. It just, the whole thing wasn't designed right. It was just weird. So I just raised an issue because I thought maybe they don't know. <laughs> and what was effectively happening, which is how I got in, into politics, um, is that they had put out like a false memorandum <laughs> and they weren't going to actually deliver any of those things. 
And what it looked like was that they were trying to basically push out an entire industry that had been in Tauranga for, I don't know, generations, right? Fishing and anyone that had to deal with um, anything. And it looked like the plan was to bring in just super yachts into Tauranga. And so um, I started like, you know, because I came from a corporate, I just thought, oh, well, they must not know this. <laughs> yes. It must be first, an overlook. It's your first reaction to this, isn't it? Yeah. Because I mean, why would you just put 25 small businesses out of business? Like when you look at the turnover that these fishing companies actually bring in to the local economy. It's significant. I mean, we refit our boats. Like there's a lot of work that goes into maintaining boats. There's jobs, there's fuel, there's like a lot of stuff. So I think I just thought this doesn't make any sense, especially I also thought there should be a law where if you've got generations of an industry, I didn't actually think that it was legal to just get rid of them. (laughs) And maybe that's how, I mean, I'm not sure. So I, um, I got involved just thinking it was going to be a quick thing, had a meeting, uh, they were like, oh, yeah, no, no, this can happen, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, can you halt the tender process? Because it looks like we need to bid on land. And I'd like to pull together a bunch of different people and for us to um, jointly make a co-op with all of these small businesses so that we can actually have a place to unload fish, you know, put gear on and off, get fuel, get ice, and we can all share this space. And... um they so can you please just halt the tender process because your memorandum's incorrect and we actually need to relook at this now or we're all going to be out of business. So that's actually how I got involved with New Zealand first. So I went to National and was trying to get them to look into it because it, it was two hundred and twenty million. What year was this, Erica? This would have been like two thousand and sixteen. Okay, I think yeah, about twenty sixteen it was. And so um, is when I started it. I don't know when I approached National. It might have been like a year into it. I was just like, well, I need some help. Like, this is bizarre. Um, they kept going forward with the plan and I was having all these meetings and nothing was changing. I tried to get a lawyer at, the, at that time and no one would represent us. They kept saying it was a conflict. And I was thinking, what in the heck? Like, how can people actually raise a concern like this? The 25 businesses who were with me all of a sudden started getting threatened basically saying if they, you know, were with me, the quota packages would be cut and all this stuff that was coming from industry and all different types of ways and play. It was, it was like, I was just, I said to my husband, this is really weird. (laughs) He's like, no, no, I think you're looking into it. I was like, I don't think I am. Why won't they stop? Like they keep talking, we keep having conversations, but nothing's changing. Yes. It was quite spooky. (laughs) Um, And um so anyway, I went to National and I spoke to Simon at the time and I just said like, hey, you know, and, and he put in an email and stuff. and Because oh, he was your local MP. Yeah, at the time. So he put in mm-hmm. an email to the mayor at the time and um, kind of came back and they just said, oh, I swap these letters. Um, you know, I'm incorrect. And there is, you know, basically saying that what I'm saying is untrue. So they were just like, oh, well, there's nothing we can do. And I'm like, but they're lying. <laughs> He's like, well, I mean, you know. So then I went to... I walked, someone told me to go to New Zealand first and I just thought, nah, like those, I didn't, you know, I just kind of thought they were for older people and I didn't think they, I don't know why I thought this at the time, but this is just what I thought. (laughs) Um, And so anyway, I walked in to um, the MP at the time in Toranga's office and I said, hey, uh, I don't know if this is the right place. And someone's told me to come in here. I'm not sure how you can help. And at the time they were in opposition anyway. And um, I said, you know, here's what we've got going on. And he was like, I was on the council when this was discussed and this isn't what it was supposed to be. Oh, really? Now, who was this MP? It was Clayton Mitchell. Okay. 
And so he's like, yeah, I was on the council when this went through. This is not actually the development that it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be for. And I said, well, it doesn't look like that. So I bring all this information in and he was like, uh, this is crazy. He's like, how have you approached this? And so he said, look, we're in opposition. There's not much I can do, but I can help you navigate. That's actually where it seems to be the issue is. And most people don't actually know how to navigate the system. And I thought, that's what I need. I don't need you to do anything. I need you to tell me how I can navigate. <laughs> and so we had this long chat and he just said, um, like, show me your, so I was showing him my emails, right? And he's like, well, the first thing you're doing wrong <laughs> is you're telling a bunch of people with big egos that they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. And that actually is not going to get you anywhere. And I was like, but they are wrong. He's like, I know, but you need to lead them there. <laughs> you don't tell them that they're wrong. So I thought, okay, okay. Um, and so we started, like, he started just kind of giving me some advice on how I can start to make traction. And I remember um, through their office, a consultant had come through and this guy, I guess they had talked about me. And so they put me in touch with this consultant and he was gung-ho. He's like, you know, look, I'll help you. Um, and so he came in and because a lot of the issues I was running into was, well, you have a vested interest in this. So we're not listening to you kind of thing, right? Even though I was representing 25 other other businesses. But then also at the time, what started happening is as these businesses were getting too afraid to speak up, I became like the sole person on this like battle all alone. <laughs> Even though quietly, they were all really happy to see me continue Jeez. forward. Publicly, they now couldn't help me. So then the council saying, oh, well, why aren't these people here? And I'm like, well, because you guys have all threatened them. <laughs> they can't be here. <laughs> it's a great feeling in politics where everyone says, you know, you're, you're sitting in your trench and everyone says, you know, let's make a run for it. And you go over the top and you're running furiously towards the barbed wire. And then you look around and you realize you're the only one. <laughs> yeah, it was very much like that. And then you would hear like, my husband was like, you've got to stop. People are talking about you. Um, I was down at, you know, the wharf and someone was saying that um, you're, we're mad because our family didn't get land. And I'm like, oh, that is untrue. He's like, I know, but they're, you know, Erica, I, they're talking about you. They're saying mean things about you. And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> like, this is unacceptable. Like, what are we going to do? Because essentially what was going to happen is we just bought a new house. Our daughter was just diagnosed with autism. Um, this business paid our bills. And if we lost this company, we lost everything. And then what are we supposed to do? So the only thing you have left is to fight, right? Mm. And so, yeah, so I fought in that. And then I got to the point where I started to realize that I was having meetings for meetings and nothing was working. And then clearly there were some different interests in there. And I think there were some, probably some deals that had gone on, you know, like, I'm not sure. It was just very, everything kind of said, it is not what it seems. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly and, what you mean. Yeah. And so um, the consultant was great. He was saying the same thing. It's not what it seems. He was going even further than I went to find out even more information. And he would come back and go, this is dodgy. <laughs> He's like, you have a case. So we filed complaints to MB. Um, I filed complaints with um, everyone like in government and um, even Shane Jones. Like I had this uh, like idea that maybe the PGF fund could come in and um, invest in the Marine precinct so we could have a co-op and then we could all at least work in one area. And then if they wanted to do this, you know, super yacht thing, then they can do that in another area. And I had this idea of putting in like, you know, like a fisherman's wharf where people can come down and buy fresh fish off of these sustainable fishing boats and, you know, like actually bring people into the Tauranga city, right? The CBD, because it's kind of like a, a dying place at the moment. And, um, 
anyway, all these conversations, um, you know, the council just weren't into it. Um, and so I thought that election came up in 2019. And so I just I said to my husband, it's way cheaper for me just to run. <laughs> and he was like, oh God, <laughs> Erica, we have so much going on. And I'm like, I'm like, I can't give up now. Like I've just spent, and this was what, 2016, 2017, 2018. We're now in 2019. It's now become my full-time job, like basically fighting local government. (laughs) And I'm like, I can't walk away now. (laughs) So I put in my name. And and I think during this time, Rodney, I was speaking to someone who is a Western Bay counselor, Margaret. And they actually spoke Margaret to me Murray. We've had Margaret Murray on the show. Have you? Well, her and um, she put me in touch with you in 2019. And I was actually looking for these emails because um, I had come to you to say, look. What I should doing. tell listeners that um, I had completely forgotten and not connected the names. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's easy to, I guess I'm quite, <laughs> back then, I mean, it just didn't seem like anybody remembered. No, it was just an email, right? Yeah, well, well, I think we actually spoke on the phone as well. Okay. Um, but, but, you know, at the time, you probably didn't know how to help, and I probably didn't know how I, what I needed. I think she just said, call him, and then I was called you, and we both were like, uh. <laughs> so I put my name in that um, local body election, and I I did my announcement. So friends of mine were putting together this, um, the mayoral debate for that election. And they said, hey, do you want to be the speaker? And at the time... I wasn't sure if I was going to run. And so they said, look, why don't you go in and talk about the issue? These issues are happening all across the city where um, things are being promised. They're not having true engagement. No one's listening to the public. So why don't you come in and ask the first question and we'll give you five minutes and you can lay out the issue that you're facing. And I thought, yeah, okay. So I got up in this mayoral debate. (laughs) I remember like writing this speech. It was my first speech. I'd never actually spoken publicly um, like this. Um, and I remember, you know, talking about the Marine precinct. And as I'm going through what had happened, you hear like oh, the gasps in the audience. And and I had had press. There was, you know, stories. What the, What yeah. do you think was motivating the gasps? They were horrified that you were saying this, or yeah, they didn't were know. They ag- were they agreeing with you, or mortified by what had happened? Yeah, they were a surprised that they had never heard of any of this going on. Yeah. Um. Two, when I started talking about um, the plan to move forward and that I had had, um, that I wanted an investigation into the council for not listening to the public and talking about our business, I think they were just horrified that this was going on and no one even knew in the public. But at the same time, you know, it's not, there was press, I had gotten media out there and we had done some stories, but it just highlighted to me how you, as a, a, you're only really interested in things that affect yourself. And so, yes. you know, you read something about the Marine precinct, most people are like, oh, that doesn't affect me. You know, so you go to the next thing. Yes. So this highlighted a lot of things to me, which is how, I guess, government and the public should be working better together because actually it, what happens is you raise a story, it goes, and then it dies. And then you have to keep trying to find different ways to raise the same issue. And if no one's interested anymore, it dies. And nobody, you fight this lonely battle all by yourself, right? And I do think that there's a lot of um, ways we can engage with people better, but um, especially when it's your own money, like if, well, you know, I've, uh, we're a business owner. So if I had different departments in my company hemorrhaging money, I would want to know. <laughs> so the public also probably wanted to know. Um, 
So they just couldn't believe it was happening. They couldn't believe it couldn't get a lawyer. They couldn't believe that the council kept moving forward with it. They couldn't believe they didn't stop the tender process. So um, I asked this long, gave this like little um, spiel. And then at the end, I just said, so if you're running for mayor, how can you, um, like, what can you do to make sure that what I've faced doesn't happen to anyone else? And, um, and then I got off the stage. I remember just trembling. I was so scared and so nervous because I just knew like it was just this awkward feeling where you're that girl for four years that's been in like a pain. And now all of a sudden you're at the mayoral debate where they're all trying to keep their jobs. And you're basically saying all of you guys are terrible. <laughs> um, and then I sat down and then the next day I just said to my husband, I'm going to do it. I'm going to run. And um, it was much cheaper. <laughs> it was like, what, a couple hundred bucks, I think. And um, much cheaper than a lawyer and much cheaper than the consultant that I had to hire. And so, yeah, I put my name in the 2019 election for the Tauranga City Council. And um, that was interesting because I had never run in an election before. And so you have to do your 150 words. And I didn't know if it was in first person or third person or what I was supposed to do. So um, I sent two versions and just said, hey, can you use the one that's appropriate, right, for, um, you know, for the booklet that comes out? Anyway, I was doing really good. People were getting nervous I was going to get in. Um, and uh, and there was a lot of support. And I was so surprised because I had been so used to no one supporting me in this thing. <laughs> um, to a lot of people in the public actually um, being very supportive. And anyway, the booklet comes out for voting. And would you believe <laughs> that in this document, everyone's is like, hi, I'm so-and-so, you know, blah, blah, blah. And mine is like, Erica Harvey is a fighter for the people. <laughs> and I was like, no. <laughs> and I rung the council. I'm like, whoa. And it was digital at the time. So it hadn't gone into a booklet. I just said, I've just gotten this. You guys have published the wrong 150 words. They said, oh, we're sorry. We can't change it. And I was like, what? Oh my God. <laughs> and so then I, but then I heard from the mayor at the time that, or who was someone who was running that they actually changed his. So he's like, they can change it. They changed mine. And I thought, well, what the heck? They're not changing mine. So I went out and I started just trying to drop my, and this is, this is the council civil servants. <laughs> yeah. This is in 2019. And I was horrified. Cause I just, I sounded so arrogant cause it was in the third person. <laughs> um, and so anyway, I was trying to drop off all these flyers and I was trying to do all the stuff to get my actual, you know, out and from me. And um, yeah, anyway, everyone thought that I was in, had this in the bag and um, I lost by a very small margin. And, um, and I just remember after you're hustling so hard that election and then you find out you lose <laughs> and then you go to bed and then you are like, because everything's so busy during an election, then you're just like, your life feels so different after that. <laughs> mm. um, and yeah, so I, um, so that was 2019. And then, um, and that council actually wound up being, uh, well, all over the news, I guess, because then commissioners got brought in, right? Like, so they couldn't, they couldn't work well together. And um, yeah, and so that turned out a whole different way too. So it might've been a lucky break or maybe if I was there, I could have actually helped amalgamate the two sides. I don't know. Um, but what it did happen is it meant that all that work that I've been doing um, when that MP was going to be, um, he, he wanted you know to get out of politics and start spending time with his family and stuff. Uh, he came to me and asked uh, if I would be interested in standing for New Zealand first in 2020. And 
I just thought, oh, like, oh, I don't know. (laughs) That sounds like a big, you know. And so we had a lot of discussions. And at the time, I was quite involved in the party at that stage. I had been the chairperson of their local electorate. And, um, you know, and he just said, look, you've got, because also through this, so my, going back to your initial thing, my stories are weird because everything intertwined. So Piper's diagnosed with autism. We're about to lose our business that we had to start. So that's how I got involved in local body. But also at the same time, my daughter then turns five because of the time that it took for me to go through that local body stuff, right? She was in Montessori full time um, and they were doing great. So she was there from nine to five. And um, once we got her routines down and we're figuring out how to you know, work with Piper and I was going through all these trainings with her, she was doing great. So she turns five, it's time for her to go to school. So I go to my local school and... Um, I remember walking into there and they said, oh, look, because your daughter has ORS funding, which is the ongoing resources scheme, which is very hard to get. They only save this funding for like kids who are really, really, have really, really complex high needs, right? So that's actually how hard she was at the time. Um, And they basically tell me at my local school that uh, most parents with kids who have, you know, autism uh, pick their kids up before lunch. And I was like, what? Like, how can I work? Because at the time I was doing some consulting and stuff. I thought, well, I I have to go to work. Like I have a mortgage to pay. So how am I supposed to do that? And they said, oh, I mean, or, you know, she can stay here, but she won't have any help. Uh, She won't have any assistance because, well, we could file with the board and see if they want to give more money. And 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 I'm sitting there thinking, well, I don't want to cause the school to go broke because of my kid. And then you suddenly feel like, you're a burden onto a school and that she's going to be unsafe. She couldn't toilet herself. So she needed help going to the bathroom. She was still in nappies at five. Um, you know, she couldn't, she wasn't verbal. And she was this cute little kid with these blonde curls and these big blue eyes. And oh, I remember yeah. just thinking to myself, like heartbreaking. Yeah. Like how can she not go to school? And it was, and she had been in Montessori full time, nine to five, no issues. They loved her. Montessori is so, wonderful. Is it not? Oh, it was great. And, you know, it was a best start. So Chloe Wright, you know, sadly just passed away. Mm. Um, you know, it was it was an amazing Montessori. And um, yeah, so then this is how I got involved in education. And um, so I we obviously don't send her to our local school. And I remember coming home to my husband crying, just saying, what am I supposed to <laughs> what are we supposed to do? We can't send our she can't go to school with other kids. Like, how are we? And it was just this. And then I'm like reading and it's like, well, they're not allowed to do that. And I'm like thinking, yeah, but why would you send your school to someplace where you don't feel that your kid is going to be looked after or loved or protected? There were so many kids running around. I just thought, I just imagined her being like all alone in this sea of children, you know, like getting bullied or something because she couldn't speak like them or wasn't acting like them. Or, you know, we already had issues where we would be at a playground and you'd see families because she would say like zigga, 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 zigga. And she would look at her hands in front of her face. And you'd already get the judgments of parents or, you know, I was at a neighbor's house. like, And my daughter was trying to engage with this boy. He was like five and she was a bit older. And the dad, I guess, didn't realize I was the mother. And he says to this little boy, she's a bit weird. eh? Don't worry, you don't have to play with her. Just ignore her. And I just looked at him and I said, that's my daughter. And he, oh, oh, I, I didn't mean it like that. And I said, that's why kids grow up to be like your kid's going to grow up to be. Because Good you're already idea. choosing, you're already saying to him that she should, he should judge her. You know, like you've already, and that's actually, I think a lot of the issues we have today is that parents are actually 
telling kids, oh, well, they're weird or don't play with them or you don't have to. I know she's weird or, you know, that's not actually what it should be about. Um, So anyway, it was a big journey. So I wound up, uh, the Ministry of Education were also involved in our case because she had ORS funding. And I told them about the school and I was just devastated. And they said, look, there's one school and they do really well with kids like, like your daughter. And, but it's about 20 minutes away from your house. They're about to zone, but they haven't zoned yet. Let me get you an appointment. So I go to the school. It's a mainstream school. Um, They are a lower decile school. So they are used to dealing with, you know, different types of behaviors. And um, at the time, the principal, she had a a granddaughter with autism or a grandson. And um, so I show up at the school and uh, the deputy principal at the time was my husband's teacher from Pies Pa. (laughs) And so it was quite crazy. And she was also something called a CINCO, which is a special education needs coordinator. And we sit down with her and she's like, you know, Daniel, oh my gosh, you know, and I was in tears just saying like the issue, like that we can't find a school for her and um, how she has so much to give. And, you know, and she just says, look, don't worry. So she takes us on a, a tour around the school. She shows us this little room they've got called the Fuddy Manaki, which is basically where um, children who need a bit of help go into this room and they get their one-on-one help, right? And then they're put back in the normal classroom and with a teacher aid with kids, just like, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, uh, you know, children in the school. And um, she started that school, uh, like we had to come pick her up. There would be times where she would strip off all of her clothes when she would have a meltdown. And we'd get a phone call saying, your daughter's naked in the corner. <laughs> and we would have to run there. And I remember Dan grabbing her, putting a blanket over her and us having to rush her. And she was screaming and kicking in the car. And um, it, it was such a hard time in our life. I just remember saying to Dan, like, how is this our life? You know, like you have all these um, hopes and dreams and you get pregnant and you have all these um, ideas of the kind of life you'll have. And then when it's different, um, you don't really know how, like how you're going to make it through it. Cause it just feels so hard. And, um, so we get her into the school and then I start to the principal at the time, cause I was doing consulting and I was doing this stuff in local government kind of said, Hey, look, can you come in and look at our, um, our books with us? Because we're actually in a really bad place. And so I went in and we looked at everything and long story short, because I could talk forever, is that um, the school was going bankrupt. So it was about over $200,000 in the hole. And the the reason was because it had over 20 children with additional learning needs at this one school because all of the schools in the surrounding areas aren't taking them. And they're creatively excluding these kids. So and now they're doing the- that. They're doing that illegally. Right. But... Even though it's illegal, like, I mean, I remember when going through this, I was just doing research when I decided to run in that 2020 election with New Zealand First. And I wound up going to the police and I just said, hey, question, because I was dealing with another child and parents started to come to me about, you know, what was going on. And so I started advocating in this space around education and how we can change the system to, you know, help all children actually have an education together and um I went to the police to say, hey, look, um, the school's not letting this kid go to school here. And they said, well, what do you mean to do about it? I said, well, I don't know. It's illegal. <laughs> and they said, oh, that's not us. It's the ministry. So I go to the ministry, you know, and, and obviously they they don't know what to do either because the issue is funding. <laughs> so yeah. um, the ministry also, so, you know, it, it's just, it's a, it's a very complex issue if you don't know. So um, 
I started getting quite involved in that local body politics in 2017, just to go back, maybe 2018. No, it would have been 2017. So 2017 happens. um, And Jacinda gets in, right? Um, With with Winston. And, um, And the reason in 2017 that they came up with an agreement is because National didn't want to negotiate with Winston. And they had a bunch of policies that they wanted to see. And I think that's what people forget is that uh, New Zealand First is its own political party. <laughs> we have policies that we want to get across the line for our own members, you know? And so we look to see who we can actually get policies across with. And they had some really good policies. So one of them was rolling out like learning support coordinators, which would actually help kids with additional learning needs. Um, it would give a funded role for a school, which means it would take off that burden off of their operational grant. So some of these like really great ideas um, came from New Zealand First and when Labor did this coalition, right? So 2017, I'm not really involved in um, this type of politics. I'm sorry, I've jumped around. But I wound up writing a letter because I'm going through this stuff with the school. The school's writing letters to um, government for a long time saying, hey, look, we're going to go broke. We're going to go bankrupt. We can't keep doing this. The Ministry of Education is referring all these children to our schools and we love them and we will take them. But other schools need to do their part or you've got to come up with a different funding model because we're going broke and we're only going broke because we're following the law of inclusion and the Education Act. (laughs) So I remember just as a consultant going, them saying, can you help us raise, raise this issue? Because we have written so many letters to government, no one's listening. And I just remember saying, yeah, so I started it like a normal, um, you know, like a consultant was very, uh, you know dear so-and-so, you know? (laughs) And I remember sitting in my office thinking about this letter and how I was going to try and get people to know what was going on in in the education space with kids with uh, learning disabilities and additional learning needs and physical disabilities. There's just a wide range of issues. And I sat in my office one night. I remember it was really late. I probably had some wine. (laughs) And I thought, I'm going to write a letter to her like I like as a mom, you know, not as a consultant, not as someone that's working with this school to try to help them. I'm going to write it as a mom. So I wrote a Dear Jacinda letter and it was basically like, you know, Dear Jacinda, I was at the top of my career like you are right now when I found out that I had, you know, was pregnant. And I basically go through and and explain in a very vulnerable and open way what it's like to be a parent of a child with additional needs, Right that we all enter parenthood the same. We get a pregnancy test. We're very excited about it. We dream about the things we're going to do with our kids and all the places we'll go and who they'll grow up to become. And and then one and day- the life, And the life they will have. Yeah. And the life that you will have together. And, and, then, and then suddenly you find out that the life is different than you imagined. And not only that, you're all alone because you meet people on this journey and they'll say, I can't imagine that. Oh, she's not that autistic. Oh, she's not that. Oh, well, where is she on the spectrum? It's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, or, um, you know, they, because usually these kids, like children like Piper are really good at masking. So they mask really well that they're fitting in. Right. And then they come home and just lose it. <laughs> and that's the stuff that people don't see. Right. So it's a very complex thing. So I write her this letter and I decide that as I send it to her office, I sent it to every single media outlet at the same time. And it got picked up. 
And then that was when everything started to change for the school. And also I started to get this like crazy fire in my belly about, oh my God, maybe I can help change this. Because I didn't realize at the time I went through it, what the impact was for schools. I only knew what the impact was for myself. I didn't know the reason why it happened. I had assumed at the time it was just because she was too hard and no one wanted to deal with her. You know, like that's how you think. And then you go, oh, wait a minute. Or they say like, follow the money. (laughs) Um, Well, there's no money. (laughs) So um, yeah, so then that started my whole journey into education. So when that MP asked me if I would run in um, local bot or in that big election in 2020, he was like, you can have a voice in in this area of education. And I just thought, oh my God. And that was the that was a thing for me. I didn't want to be a politician. Like I ran in local body because I was tired of not being heard. And I was tired of seeing the same issues happen in across different sectors and different, you know, departments of the council. And I wanted to make it better. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I'm in now in this education space. And it's like, hey, look, you can actually make a difference. And I just thought, oh, okay. And I went back and forth for a long time. And um, and yeah, I mean, that's that's basically how he sold it to me was you can be a voice in this space for other parents, for other families. And, um, you know, and maybe, you know, you can have influence on changing this the model. And I thought, okay, I'll I'll give it a go. And so I ran in 2020. Obviously, we know the outcome of that. <laughs> um and and I and I said I wouldn't run again, and instead I wound up um, thinking because I come from a consulting background. I I love business models, and you and I talked about you know music and stuff. And I think my husband and I have talked about this because I went from being quite musical, which is quite creative, right? And I think what I've done in hindsight is that I've taken the creativity I used to get from music, and I funneled it into business by you know when I was a consultant, I was looking at a lot of startups and toying with different business models and trying to find different, um, you know, different ideas so you can find a, a problem. And because I have a background in technology as well, you can, what I loved about it is you can find a big issue and then you can pull all sorts of different people around and you can come up with a solution and then you can use technology to solve it. And, um, and so I really like sitting around a table with all sorts of people who think differently than me. And that's a huge part of innovation is that. And so when you get into this 2020 stuff, I was thinking, when the heck is happening? We used to be able to uh, appreciate everyone who thought differently. Like there was always that term, like think outside the box, you know, and then 2020 comes and now it's like, no, 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 only think in the box. Don't look outside the box. Don't, you know, and so there was this like crazy huge shift that was happening in that 2020 election. And um, after everything had finished and obviously New Zealand First was out, I just thought to myself, there's got to be a way that I can give the people a platform to cons- to continue to look at politics, but in a different way. And so I um, I came up with this concept called Lobby for Good, and um, which I, uh, ironically has just been hacked um, <laughs> this weekend. So I'm trying to see if we can recover the pages. But anyway, um, and what Lobby for Good was was I learned a lot about lobbying going through all the stuff. See, I didn't realize, and I think people think the word lobbying is an American term. Um, but New Zealand is one of the only countries uh, in the world that has zero zero lobbying regulations. And mm. so <laughs> I found that fascinating when I was running in 2020. Um, I think I sat in a course at the University of Waikato 
around um, lobbying and lobbying regulations. And I was sitting there learning everything and I thought, oh my God, this is what is happening. And because there's no regulations, then the public don't actually know who's meeting with who and, you know, where things are coming from, right? So I came up with this concept called Lobby for Good. And A, it was to help the public learn more about lobbying, highlight that uh, there have been people that have wanted to change the lobbying industry in New Zealand, but they haven't been able to get it through and um, figure out a way where I could almost create like this, almost like a political, it ran like a political party, right? Like you would have uh, different people in the organization who all were specialized in different portfolios, right? So you'd have someone who's focused on farming and agriculture and their job would be to go sit down with the farming and agricultural, you know, entities and look at ways that government can do things better and come up with solutions, come back to lobby for good. We could put it up together, put together a lobby, try to get public support and, um, you know, and run with it. But obviously 2020 happened. And then um, we, yeah, like it's just been a really hard thing because I wound up going to go for investment. But then when you go look for outside investment and something like that, it's quite easy to, um, <laughs> it, I, it would uh, hinder my ability to do the things that I believe it should do, which is that it should just focus on the issues that the people have, right? Um, and when anybody has a vested interest in it, it can you know, cloud what it is. And even if there is no bad things going on, it can just give a bad picture. So I was funding it myself, which was quite expensive to do. And so, um, so that was something that I actually was saying to my husband, um, you know, it should carry on. So no matter if I, if, you know, when we do get in this time um, and whether I get in is or not, you know, this, I want it to continue because I think there's real value in, the community being able to have someplace because that's what I wanted. Like when I was fighting local government and even navigating central government, what there wasn't was a place I could go to to say, now what? <laughs> you know, and mm. you can't do that without finding a lawyer, getting a consultant. And so lobby for good was kind of the the now what, you know, so if there's a big issue and you can get enough people to say this is something you need to look at, then we could actually go. Um, fundraise for these lobbies to get funded so we can then hire the support that we need to then take on these cases of the community and lobby government for change, right? Um, and so that's kind of where I spent my my time getting through this. And um, the education space is a big deal for me. So now in this election, um, I will be uh, the spokesperson for education. Wow. Um, and so I'm quite excited about that, which has it's it's quite exciting. So it's like looking at these um, polling numbers, right? So we're like on the cusp. I think we're at nine seats and I'm number 10. <laughs> and wow. so I'm just thinking, oh my gosh. And my husband and I were sitting on the couch last night. He's like, what if you actually get to do exactly what you started and be a voice for people? How exciting. Yeah, it's really cool. And I look at my daughter. So my daughter, like going through a school that's fully funded like that, uh, not funded like that, but I mean, like going through a school that fully supports her like that, that doesn't have the funding to do it. The drastic change um, from when she entered school to where she is now is like insane. Like I, I do podcasts with her because which is why I have this whole setup at my house because it helps me. I wasn't recording them. I just sat with her with a microphone and headphones because we, it's the only time I can get her to talk to me, to have a conversation because she can hear herself through her ears. She sounds really good, you know. Um, but the change in Piper from going to a mainstream school where she didn't realize that she was 
different because she's not different. Like to me, you know, autism just means that you think differently. And actually Piper taught me that. She found out she had autism because she heard me talking about it. And I'd never known how to bring it up to her. And so she first thought it was us that had autism. So she said uh, something about what is autism? And I said, oh, how do you know what that is? And she says, I know what autism is. And I said, what is it? She says, it means you think differently to me. You and dad have autism. And I said, you're right. That is exactly correct. Um, And then as we've gone through this journey, you know, she now knows that she has autism, but that's how she, she has understood what it is. And I think that's actually the, the best way to put it is that she just thinks differently than me. And a lot of times, like she's the way that she, she has a photographic memory. So I can say to Piper, what did you do on August the 2nd, 2000 and, you know, 2020? She could say, oh, well, I was wearing a red shirt and I went to school and I did this and I had this for nice. lunch. And yeah, like we're just like tapping into like the incra- these crazy abilities that she has with memory. Yeah, which is also hard as a parent because I mean, she never forgets anything. You no, know? you can't <laughs> tell porkies. No, not at all. And yeah. so she, how old is she now? Uh, she's 12. Yeah. She's talking? Yeah. She, it's funny. She is, people would say she's talking. She does echolalia, which she has memorized. She All she does all day long is memorize people. She does videos to people and they've sent her videos back in my family and stuff. And she memorizes what they say. And then she creates scripts to uh, change so that she can talk. So this is, she's taught herself how to talk by memorizing what other people say and then figuring out what they mean and changing it. Like, <laughs> for example, she's watching food videos right now. And I made dinner the other night. She said, mm, I love chicken Parmesan. The chicken is so <laughs> moist and the sauce is so creamy. And when I put it in my mouth, it just tastes fantastic. And <laughs> I was like, whose video is that? And she says like, I forget the lady's name. It's something weird. She's like, oh, she travels on cruise ships and tries all these different kinds of food. <laughs> like, yeah, she's, okay. like Chet, she's like Chet GP. Absolutely. Yeah. So she makes like, I mean, if you want to cook for her, she make you sound like an amazing chef, you know? <laughs> and um, can she read? She has read, been able to read before she could speak. My yeah. Goodness. And you remember everything. I don't. Yeah. And this is the thing. I'm not sure if she understands what she's reading in a book, but she definitely understands when I write so we, before we could talk a lot, I could write to her and she could read it and then she would get it, but she couldn't write back at the time or say anything. So I started to realize that she could, she could read quite early on. Um, and so I would write our schedule down, like first we'll do this, then we'll do this, then we'll do this. And then as we would do it, I would cross them off on a notebook. And we started to notice her um, anxiety go down a lot once she knew what we were doing and it seemed like that was a lot of the issues we had early on was uh it sounds like a lot, a lot of our a lot of her meltdowns are because she didn't know what was next and so she would like freak out because she couldn't yeah you know it was like she would just get um this severe anxiety and so once we started structuring everything which has been really hard because i've just had a baby and so that is really hard to structure your day and the times of everything um mm. when you have a newborn so um yeah, but no, she's doing great. So great. And is your expectation that she'll be able to live an independent life? I it is my it is my hope. And I, you know, when you have a kid, 
who, um, or a child who, you know, has autism or any type of a disability, right? Or I just call them different abilities. I don't think there's a disability. I just think there's different, we all have different abilities and we're all skillful at different things, right? And um, so I hope that she can, but, you know, there is that fear for all parents like, like us when you have a child, when you, especially when you only have one of what will happen to them when you're not here. Because no one's going to love your kid like you love your kid, you know? No way. And there's no amount of funding you can throw at an institution where to make sure that they will take care of your no. kid like you would take care of your kid. So in this weird way, when we found out we were pregnant, because um, it was obviously a surprise, we had told we couldn't have any more kids. And um, long story short, surprise. <laughs> um, I remember when we were going through all the shock of that and sitting with my husband, we... Um, I had, I got the blood test done that they give you a blood test and you know tell you what because I'm for, I'm in my 40s so um, I did that blood test to see if there are any um, chromosomal stuff mainly just for us to know what our next you know because you have one child with autism it's just like what are we dealing with in another child you know because we would have to really plan how you know how to tackle what kind of support we were going to need and things so I did that blood test and came back that you know the baby was you know, had nothing um, picked up, but because we did the bloods, it told us if it was a boy or a girl. And so I found out really early, about 14 weeks that um, we were having a boy. And I remember we found out and I said to my husband, oh my God, like I was so happy it was a boy. I mean, I would have loved it in any way it came, but I know. I know. to be a boy meant that Piper wouldn't judge this, her sister, you know, like if it was a girl. Please. I felt like she would be go, oh, why is she married? Or she had children and she had these friends. And I I didn't want her to compare herself to a sibling. Mm -hmm. So when we found out he was a boy, I just, we just both cried. And I just said, oh my God, I'm so happy. Like he can protect her when we're gone. And, you know, there's nothing like having a brother. Um, I have two brothers myself. And so, um, yeah, that kind of, and, and men, when we've had this little boy, we were worried how she would feel because she's been the only child for so long. And um, man, she has, she's growing up. She's just such a huge help. I actually couldn't do this without her. And so when you asked me if I think she'll have an independent life, I really hope so. And I think watching me have a baby and then being there to take care of the baby and helping me and seeing how hard it is, my hope is that one day maybe she will be, you know, fall in love and maybe one day she will have a family and maybe this is like that hands-on kind of training to help her navigate what that life is like. And and if she doesn't get that, then, um, you know, as long as she's happy, I don't mind. But I just want to make sure someone's got her back because I, you know, because I've got her back. <laughs> and um, yeah, so. Uh, what is autism? Do we know? You know, I autism seems to be an issue in the frontal lobe of, of the brain. Um well, where it affects it, I mean. And it's, I really think it just means that we just think differently, um, you know, socially um, a bit more reserved. And um, yeah, I mean, it's a spectrum. So every, autism is different for every single uh, child and family, which is why I think when we're doing like a one size fits all kind of approach, it doesn't work even when you're just saying, oh, well, it's autism. It's every child is so different on that, on that spectrum, depending on where they, you know, what the makeup is of their diagnosis for Piper. Um, I think it just means that she thinks differently. She needs to be prepared. Um, she needs to feel supported. Like, you know, the coolest thing 
is as a mom of, of a girl, because you've got social media, you've got so many girls. So I also have a GM of a youth charity, right? <laughs> um, and so dealing with a lot of youth in Toranga, a lot of the stuff that's coming through there around eating disorders, and that's coming from social media. And um, I think social media has a huge effect on our youth. Um, and Indeed. Indeed. so, I'm, yeah. And so I'm working with them on that. And I, I said to my husband the other day, I was, uh, I still have to bathe Piper and everything like that. Um, and so I'm getting her ready for a shower and she looks in the mirror and she says to me, look, I'm growing up. I said, you are. She goes, and I look fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) You do. And I put her in the shower and I said to my husband, like, how cool is that? You know, she's got a positive body image. She is a very positive kid. She, um, she loves everyone, you know, like there, we were at, um, we had a scan out in Pepimo, right. When I was pregnant, we were at this cafe Piper, um, this man comes over to our table. He was covered in like tattoos all over his head. And, and it was like, um, they were like logos. It was like meatloaf and uh, it was just a very, you know, uh, different type of like also you couldn't like say he's this type or that type. He just had, you know, logos and a lot of meatloaf stuff all over his tattooed all up. He had big um, piercings all over his cheeks, his head, his face, you know. Um, And he comes over to our table and he was going to borrow a chair, right? And Piper, and sometimes you just don't know because Piper will just say what she thinks. And she doesn't know if it's like socially, politically correct. You know, she just says what she thinks. So this guy comes to the table and she goes, wow, you have lots of stuff on your face. And we're (laughs) like, oh no. And, And he goes, yeah. And she goes, you're so stylish. <laughs> yeah, cool. And we just thought, what a great kid you have turned out to be. Like, how cool is that? Like, she just appreciates someone being like individual and themselves. And she's just like, man, that's so stylish. <laughs> you know, where most people will be like, wow. Oh, oh, you know, like, oh, don't look at him. You know, um, do you look upon her as a blessing? Like, in a sense that, you have a much better appreciation of the world and of yourself and of your husband and of your family and of her? She has come to me for a reason. She has incredibly changed my life um, in so many ways. I never would have even, I mean, I, I was talking to Kirsten Murphy about this because she has a special needs son as well. And what we reckon is that when you have a kid with different needs, right? You spend, and if you think about it, I've been doing this since she was two years old, fighting for her. It actually awakens this crazy fight inside you. I would never fight like this for myself. I wouldn't even fight like this for my husband. <laughs> yeah, because you know? yeah, he's an right? Yeah, right. Do it yourself. Um, but, you know, I think that's what this has been for me. And I've seen, I've, I have had a pretty, you know, good life myself, you know, and I've probably taken a lot of things for granted. And what Piper has highlighted to me is that, you know, I've had some dark times with her, um, you know, where I've been like crying, wondering how I'm going to get through this. And I'm pretty sure I had some postnatal depression in there. I definitely almost had a nervous breakdown when she was three and screaming all the time. And, you know, I speak about this on a, a Voices for, um, I think it's called Voices of New Zealand First. I had a big chat about kind of my life into politics. And, you know, I'll never forget sitting in front of my door in my master bedroom she just screamed all the time and I just remember crying and Dan was away at sea and I just thought, how is this my life? I had, you know, and, um, but she has taught me about resilience. She has taught me 
that um, for every everything that she does that feels like really hard, that there's always a reason and I have to uncover what the reason is and then the behavior can stop. And yeah, she's taught me like beauty and things I never would have thought about. Um, I look Mm. at people differently. I look at situations differently. Like when I see that, you know, I, I hate seeing us all fighting about different things because, you know, if I look at COVID, for example, right, I remember going through 2020 and I was saying to my husband, the most messed up thing about this is you've got two groups of people, both fearful of something, right? So you had one group that was so fearful of a virus that they were pro the vaccine. Then you had this other group of people that were so fearful of the vaccine that they weren't worried about the virus. And I think the biggest issue that we had as a government then is, and which is why I never want to see this happen again, is that you basically minimize another group's fear by saying your fear doesn't matter. This fear is where we're focusing. Instead of saying, hey, look, we've got people who are fearful on both ends. What can we do to support them? Right? Mm. And that has been the biggest thing is that we have gone into this whole thing about almost manipulating people based on why they're fearful. And I just think that is a terrible place to be. Whereas like that reminds me of like, you know, my daughter being afraid of the boogeyman at night or, you know, she needs the lights on and stuff. I mean, just say, oh, grow up. There's nothing there and turn the light off. (laughs) What kind of kid do you think that's going to turn out to be? Right. Mm. I'm not sure. I mean, because I would never do that. So, but you know, that's how it feels to me is when I've gone through all these behaviors with Piper, I just, you know, and I think I've, you become a, a expert at, um, at behaviors, you know, does like Piper, does Piper give love? Oh yeah. And that's the one thing that I think broke my heart when she was diagnosed as I remember sitting with my husband saying, I just want a kid to tell me, I just wanted to, I just want to hear her say, I love you. And, um, and man, she is just the most loving kid. You know, she'll always like with, <laughs> she always thinks I get mad at her because she'll do things. And I just look at her and she'll go, mom, can I have a hug? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, I love you. You're really, you know, you're amazing. And she's like, thanks. That really helps my heart. I love you too. And I just think, God, I never thought we would be here. If someone would have told me where I'd be, where she would be 12 years ago, I never would have believed it. Even when she graduated primary school, I should share this video, actually. Um, the principal did a speech and she has to date been one of the hardest kids they've ever had come through that school. But the growth in her and the change in her and who she has become is so different. And and she's really into music, Rodney, which has been amazing for me because it's something that she, it's something that we could connect on. You know, like I used to sing instead of talking to her because music has always been um, a big part of her therapy in life. And, um, you know, even getting her to talk, my husband and I used to, um, we realized that she was speaking. She would always say weird things like, you know, um, she would recite, oh, it was tiger cake. So I was in my office and she would have these huge outbursts and she kept saying, oh no, tiger cake, tiger cake. Oh no. And then she would start crying uncontrollably. And I'm like, tiger cake, what in the you know, what the heck is she talking about? And talking to Dan and he's like, I don't know. And so I'm working in my office one day because I was obviously working from home now and, um, you know, I had Piper and um, I hear on the television, oh no, tiger cake. <laughs> and I, I get up out of my office and I run in there and I'm like, and it's this Daniel Tiger, like a TV show on Nick Jr. He's carrying a cake 
and it's a tiger because he's a tiger and it falls off and it smashes all over the floor. And I'm like, oh my God, she's trying to tell us that she's sad because the tiger's crying. And But he didn't say, I'm crying, I'm sad. All he said was, oh no, tiger cake, because the tiger cake fell and smashed all over the floor. So my husband and I spent months watching all of these shows that she watches and to figure out how to communicate with her. And so when the tiger cake thing happened, I was like, Piper, you're sad. You're sad. And then she would say, I'm sad. I'm like, yes. And so we started to realize that the things she was saying that didn't make sense to us actually were connected. And she was trying to connect with us, but she was thinking differently than us. So she was learning about these things by watching cartoons. So Dan and I, I mean, look, it's kind of funny because we've we've put on a lot of weight over the years and we would drive in our car and we would be like, you know, hey, you know, come on, Piper Pig, let's go for, you know, and we would start yeah. acting out these different, um, and that that's thing. how she started to come out. Like even sand, she wouldn't walk on the beach. So my husband drew shapes in it and she came right onto the beach. So it's like, figuring out how you can break like because they're all there their brain isn't it isn't isn't it an amazing thing yeah that this girl brings so much beauty yeah and insight into the world yeah and would help her classmates absolutely and the children of the school. Yeah. And yet we can openly discriminate mm-hmm. and give these children a stigma. It's really sad because I look at just she is the most genuine sweetest loving person so we've Mm. had to leave that school right and now she's in a different school and she's regressing and she's becoming so they've put her in a special unit and i can't get her out of it and they try to argue with me about oh well she is mainstreamed but she's actually just in a you know and long story short but i'm going back to the same challenges and we know i wasn't going to run in this election a lot of things made me run one was what happened in 2020 two was being a voice for other people. Three was trying to figure out ways that government can work better. And I'm just one person, but it is one thing I really want to understand is how things operate. And is there a way that we can create a better model? Um, well, good and, for you. Yeah. And then just looking at, you know, what we're going through with school again and, you know, seeing the amount of families who have reached out to me. And I mean, they add so much value to a school. And I've said this somewhere else. Like, I don't know why we expect kids to be able to sit still you know, for six hours a day when they are consumed with social media and video games. And life is different now. Like we're a very modern world mm. and education doesn't really seem to be suitable for all of the different children we have coming through. Mm. You know, and it's, you know, if you don't have a diagnosis, sadly, you fall through the cracks. So that shouldn't happen. Mm. We need to be looking at how we can help all learners. And absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a lot of education that should be how wonderful. Needs to be done. Now tell me about politics. <laughs> yeah. 10 MPs, I don't know, what would be roughly that as a percentage, 8 or 9% would get 10 MPs? Yeah, so I and think... And you're in, and I think Christine Murphy is 11, she's just one below you? 
Yeah, that's right. So I think for Kirsten, I think we worked it out as 8.8%. Wow. So So you get in, right? Yeah. Do you have a bottom line or are you just going to see how it goes? This is a tricky election because I think, and I think it will. Tricky election. Yeah. I, you know, all of this, um, all the media coming to like attack us um, has been. We're used to it. Like this has always been, you know, how it goes for New Zealand first. We're always used to the media attacking us and crazy things popping up and people trying to make Winston look like a crook and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, But I haven't seen it like this. This has been insane. Um, And, but I think what it's highlighting to people um, and maybe they didn't realize this in 2017. Right. Um, Is that we're actually our own party. Right. (laughs) A lot of times we were like, Oh, you didn't do what the country wanted. It's like, well, we're still our own party, right? And we yes. have policies that we want to get across for our membership. And if you actually want to be part of that, then you should join New Zealand first. <laughs> and because the policies we have, I mean, look, I'm biased, but they're really good policies. And I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to take them. And so if we can balance either side of it, and that's kind of, we've screwed ourselves in this election because the power of New Zealand first, which is what they always kind of, you know, make fun of New Zealand first four as being the kingmaker. But as a center party, <laughs> we can go with either side, right? Of so course, that's your, that's, that's your negotiating power, right? You don't negotiate. We're going to go somewhere else. Of In course. this election, we ruled out uh, the Labour Party really early, right? Just because we're like, hey, we're not going with them. We don't trust them. They clearly have lied to us. Here's the things and um, we're not going to go with them. And then obviously months and months later, then Labour's like, we're not going with them, even though we told them that a long time ago. <laughs> so what we've done is we've effectively put ourselves in this position now where national know we have nowhere to go. And so they're saying, oh, hey, you know, if, if they don't negotiate, it's their fault. If we can't form, oh, there could be a second election kind of thing. Um, and and so the attacks are getting a bit interesting, but I hope in this election, what people understand is what, how MM, the power in MMP if used properly, which means that you can actually, you should vote on the policies that you like and the policies you want to get. Absolutely. Don't look I'm at a big, I'm a big supporter of the, the citizen parties. You know, I, I support those parties that are outside parliament Yeah, because the existing parties have let us all down. Yeah. Fundamentally, they have let us all down. Yeah. And um, I have to say, personally, I struggle with Mr. Peters, but I love his candidates and I love what he's saying. But yeah. I have, you know, a personal, you know, thing. But that doesn't mean I disregard a political party. And to be honest, New Zealand first, following the election, if they were in the kingmaker role, they'd mm. be mad not to talk to Labour just to get leverage over national. Yeah, he won't even go there, I reckon. Uh, well, I know he won't. Um, but well, that's what I mean go. is we've put ourselves in that position. And that's because the public is so divided on so many issues right now um will you come when you're an mp will you come on our show absolutely how do you nice know i've never actually be? done these types of things before i've really enjoyed it <laughs> here you go well erica if you had three years as an mp yeah opposition cross benches government support person whatever Hmm. what would you at the end of that three years love to be able to say? 
Well, that's awesome. That's a good question. Um, I would like to say that I've been able to help people in the public establish a better sense of trust with the government. Um, a bit oh more. my goodness, that's wonderful. Yeah, I think that's what I would like. I mean, look, at the end of the day, end of three years, if if I go in there and I think, oh, Jesus, <laughs> you know, um, and there's really nothing that can be done, uh, you know, I wouldn't run again. Um, but if I genuinely feel like I can make a difference and um, give people a voice and feel heard, and I was talking to Kirsten Murphy about this the other day. I said to her, when we get in, because I'm I'm fairly confident. I feel that we'll get over that eight point eight. I think we're going to get in the double digits. That's my own I think so. thinking. Um, I said to her, "A, we need to have offices close together, <laughs> or share an office. I don't know how it works, right?" Um, I said, "But you and I need to start doing our own little chat and start talking to people about what's going on in politics, and to keep people across of what's going on, so that they know what decisions are being made." And so that people, you know, because nobody watches Parliament TV all day long, uh, you know. And you've got the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Casey Costello. Oh, I love Casey Costello. I love Casey Costello. She now, is amazing. Very you three, you three women. Oh, now, yeah. I'll tell you my story. I went into Parliament not yeah. wanting to go. And? I walked in. And for the first time in my life, I had a feeling this is where I'm supposed to be. Really? Mm. And I loved it. And I loved it because I was a hardcore libertarian. Yeah. And everything about government not working cheered me up because it sort of was a confirmation thing. Mm. And I remember Pam Corkery coming in with me being miserable because she expected government to work once she arrived, you know, with her heart. Yeah. And I realized that it was a bureaucratic, political, um, nuclear-scale disaster, and it was far worse than I had imagined. But I anticipated only being there three years. And a strange thing happened. Because from the get-go, because I sort of didn't care, I could be quite naughty. <laughs> and then everyone tried to get me out. Naughty Rodney. Yeah, because I didn't sort of fit the mould. Yeah. And the more people tried to get me out, I thought, I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> And I decided just to ride this thing for as long as I could and try and do something good. But wow. I always felt like I was behind enemy lines because politics isn't decent. It isn't productive. And the people that are tracks aren't citizens. Yeah. Yeah. And I literally look at Chris Luxon and I think it's just his bucket list and John Key. Yeah. I and I looked at Helen Clark and it was like her ideological drive to reshape the world. Mm. And Jacinda Ardern, 
Mm. This fervent, it's either like I'll, my ego in CV or this tyrannical thing. Yeah. And funny enough, when I got dumped, you know, I got voted out by my, I basically came under challenge and I knew that if I didn't go, there'd be an almighty fight and I thought I could win it, but it would destroy the party. So I just left. Oh, wow. One of the happiest moments because I thought I've had a very blessed 15 years. Yeah. And I've seen a lot. And now I can get on and live a proper life and be productive because there's nothing productive about being a politician in a sense. And I think we need citizen MPs that come and go and get on with, have a life before and have a life after. Yeah, that's what I think too. I think it's, um, you know, when you've got people that bring so much to the table, there's, you know, experience. um, The amazing thing about being a, a politician was... I learned a lot about people because I learned to listen. You think that a politician is about talking, it's about listening. And not judging because you sort of, you start off wanting not to upset them and you want their vote and people come into your office. And it's like Clayton Mitchell, you just listen and you listen from their perspective and you help them. And you learn such a lot about people and New Zealand because you go places and people show you things. Yeah. And it's an amazing um, experience. And people tell you things that they wouldn't tell another person, but they'll tell their local MP or a minister. Mm. And then you learn about yourself. And not all of it's pretty. Yeah. Because... It's very easy to sit on the sideline of politics and say, oh, I would never be that stupid, right? Yeah, yeah, so true. Yeah, you I know, think- people, people, people ask me. I was dead against everything to do with COVID. I was against the mandates. Mm. I was against the lockdowns. I was against the fear. I did not think it was something to be scared of. Yeah. But people say, oh, well, it would have been great to, for you to have been there. And I said, you know the scary thing? I did not know what I would have done if I had been there. Really? No. Yeah. I because, being... because, I'll tell you why. Why? You have to make the decision quickly. With inadequate yeah. information. And if everyone around you is making a decision in politics... And you're thinking, whoa, what do I do here? Is this something I want to die in a ditch for? Yeah. And, of course, you're getting fed a bureaucratic narrative where I was sitting at home thinking and reading and learning and understanding. I wouldn't have had that opportunity as an MP. I would have just been fed the same rubbish that was fed to Chris Luxon and David Seymour. This is actually what I've highlighted too, is that in the, in the hindsight's a wonderful thing, right? Yes. At that time, every, I mean, all we were seeing were body bags and yeah, we knew our healthcare system. Oh, and and of course, the other thing was very quickly, New Zealanders became hysterical. Oh man. And so as an MP, you would be walking <laughs> down the street and being attacked 
attacked, you know, by your people who you want to vote for you. How could you expose us to this and all? And so, it's it, I honestly. Um, so my point about it is, time and time again, you find yourself challenged, yeah, about who you are, and um, good way to put it. It's a very easy thing to sit at home and say, I think this. Mm. It's another thing to day one loudly proclaim it. I got into enormous trouble in my electorate because I never, never accepted the climate change rubbish. Really? And pe- oh, I, yes. And I mean, I'd be, and a little old lady would come up to me and say, oh, look, you know, I really like you and your party, Mr. Hyde, but I'm not voting for you. And you'd say, why not? They said, you don't care about the planet. And you'd say, oh, I do care about that. <laughs> That's the only one I've got. <laughs> and no, you don't because, you know, you won't support the emissions trading scheme or you won't support this or, you know, because it became in the nonsense of the narrative. And fortunately, I'd made my mind up strongly about that long before I'd got to the politics and I could stand my ground. But yeah. I was ridiculed and belittled and lost votes. Um, and so... Because COVID was so bizarre and 120 MPs walked in lockstep with it, I think, gee, would I have been the only one? You know, I'd love to think I would be because I quite like being naughty. There's that bit of me. There's a bit of a genetic makeup. (laughs) I've got a whole lot of, me and Winston share a whole lot of things that only people happen to and different things. But I have done things in Parliament where I was the only one. I've often voted one, one vote against and recorded one vote against, and it was me. Wow. So I would like to think that I would have the strength to walk into that parliament unvaxxed mm. and watch them detain me. Yeah. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, it would. I think, um, yeah, man. So, But uh, I don't know, you see. I don't know because I never got – it's easy to say, but I – look. I would love to have been that MP. I actually was advising <laughs> MP and I told them to do it, but they didn't have the strength. And I was thinking I would do it because being an MP wasn't important to me. Yeah. And I'd say, I'd love to see how this plays out because it's yeah. a, I'm not taking the vax. It's a 50-50 thing. It might work out for me politically. It might not. I don't care. But I believe that this is the right thing to do. And I think if you'd attempted to walk into the debating chamber unvaxxed, Trevor Mallard would have had me detained. Wouldn't that been interesting been to find a, out? It would have been a constitutional outrage because an MP can't be prevented from sitting in the debating chamber. What but a, they all would. They all would. They'd change the rules. They'd change the rules. And imagine, imagine the significance of that, but not one MP did it. And I certainly believe I would have, wow, God knows what they were fed because I can't believe when I was at the protest and I looked up at that parliament, I couldn't understand what any of them are thinking. And because I, I would surely, either. surely have gone down and spoken to the protesters, even if I had to put on a hazmat suit because I was scared. This, I mean, but again, something happened to those people and those journalists, something happened to them. Yeah. That they were so terrified by the, you know, how fear is contagious. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't watch TV or listen to the radio. So I was sitting at home happy. I wasn't scared of anything or anyone. 
But maybe if I'd been sitting in the beehive or parliament and I'd been fed all these horror stories by supposed experts, maybe, and the fear of my colleagues would have become contagious and made me scared. You know how you can get that scare? Yeah. You know, you're sitting in a movie theater and you're terrified because it's a terrifying movie or a scary moment, but you watch it at home on a DVD and you're not scared. Yeah. Yeah, true. Well, same with laughter, right? Or music. Yeah. You enjoy it more in a crowd. And so maybe if I'd been in that crowd, I would be a different person. I don't know. But there you go. Well, you're going to have a wonderful time. Well, at least I know who to call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I don't I know. Alone. <laughs> don't mention to don't mention to Mr. Peters that you're my friend. I'm in your <laughs> well, fan club. He'll never know. <laughs> he will never know. We will keep that as our little secret. With yeah. uh, Reality Check Radio listeners. I will. Erica, yes. can I thank you so much for coming on our show this morning? Can, can I, I thank... apologize for talking so much on your show? <laughs> no. To be honest, you rescued me. <laughs> because I get a lot of, particularly from my wife, but also from listeners saying, I interrupt too much. Oh, well. And so I, you were so... Flow and coherent, and you were telling heart wrenching stories yeah. about your daughter and finding out in the experience. There was nothing to say. All you, all one can do is listen. Oh well, thank you. But Go I ahead. want to thank you for sharing that with us. Hey, thanks for inviting me. This has been so nice. And you are a wonderful, beautiful human being. Your husband must be amazing. He actually is quite amazing. You've got a beautiful, beautiful daughter, I can tell, whom you yeah. dearly love and who loves you. And now you've got a little wee baby son. I know, her name is Ziggy. Ziggy. Yeah. Ziggy Stardust. Uh, I know people keep saying that. My husband likes to say Ziggy Marley. <laughs> ah, now, oh, yes. Now, I want you to go off and be an MP. I would like that very much. And um, I want you to come back on the show and I want you all the very best. And if you don't quite make it because of the electoral gods, yeah, I still would like you to come back on our show and talk about love lobby to. for good. I will. Erica, Harvey, this is Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've had a real talk this morning with a mother, with a singer, with a person who's had an amazing life. Hasn't everyone? But we don't realize it because it's just our life. And then you come on and you start talking about it. And everyone's sitting there. Isn't that amazing? And how the world is filled with such beautiful people. We shouldn't allow ourselves to be divided and tribalized. Because there are people that want to do that to us all the time. And stigmatize and label and push aside. And yet. We can talk to everyone. Thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, that was something special. Talk soon. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now.
You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please remember you can email me inbox at radleycheck.radio. You can text me at 2057. Wow. Those responses have been definitive. Everyone wants to hear from Professor Elizabeth Rata more and more and more. And Prof. Elizabeth Rata has written just a stunning article explaining so much and cutting through so much nonsense. And it's this idea, Elizabeth, that there we're actually dealing with two treaties. Could you explain that to us? Yes, I think the two treaties treaties are, the first is the Articles Treaty, which is the treaty signed in 1840, has three articles, and we, we know what those articles are. And then from the 1980s, the meaning of that treaty, of those articles, was detached from the thing itself, from the treaty, the words in the treaty and what they meant, there was a detachment. They were separated. So the words and the meaning were separated. And we then had new meaning given, and that new meaning created what I call a second treaty, the Principles Treaty. Now, the Principles Treaty has words, uh, partnership, act of re- uh, protection, uh, redress, that do not appear in the 1840 treaty at all. So they have, a new treaty has been constructed and given authority by a very small group of powerful people. And we have been told this is the treaty. No, it's not the treaty. The treaty is three articles which say something quite different from this principles treaty with a capital P. Um, These principles have been given a capital P. They are made to um, appear to be the truth. But they're simply an ideology created by a small group of influential, powerful people. How did it come about that you have a written treaty that was well debated by the chiefs and discussed. And those debates, as we know, were recorded and they clearly understood the significance of what there was they were signing. They weren't savages writing, you know, across not understanding it. They understood perfectly and that treaty was actually a beautiful, wonderful document. How could that, how did it come to pass that everything we talk about today from professors, from teachers, every politician, from the judges, from every government department, is this completely different treaty? How did this different treaty come about? How was that that achieved? How do you make a new treaty out of an old treaty? Yes, Yes. gosh, what a question. And um, there are a number of reasons, and each reason is embedded in a deeper reason. On the surface, it occurred because a group of powerful people uh, um, 
activist judges, law professors, and so on, um, insisted that this was the truth. But that's different from getting people to believe it. So then you have to get people to believe something that is in your interests. But there was an additional element, and it's the failure of our parliamentary representatives. They went along with it, despite not knowing what they were doing. And Simon Upton, who was a member of parliament in the 1990s, has actually said, when we inserted the principles of the treaty into legislation, we didn't actually know what we were doing. So it, it's almost as though you have um, the ideologues, the, the treatyists, I call them, and I certainly don't call them Māori because they're, a, they're both Māori and non-Māori. So you have the ideologues who are pushing a particular um, position because, of course, they will benefit from it. And, you know, fair enough, that's what groups of people do. Um, and then you have our, our parliamentary representatives, our members of parliament, who should have stopped it. It, was re it is their responsibility to represent us, the people. Their authority is, is the authority that we allow them to have. Mm. And for them to do something, starting in 1986 and in every piece of legislation since then, they have inserted the principles of the this new principles treaty into every piece of legislation instead of saying, hang on, stop, what are we doing? Mm. What do these principles mean? And what is their relationship to the articles of the treaty? They have not done that. But then, of yeah. course, the third group is us, the people. How have we allowed it to happen? Yes. Um, I might be able to shed some light because you may know the story or you may not. But Richard Preble told me this story. And I think in 1986, you'll be referring to the usage of the word principles in the State-Owned Enterprises Act. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, Richard tells, tells me this story, that they were having trouble with Maori leaders getting the state-owned enterprises legislation into, into, through, into law. And that Jeffrey Palmer had gone off to do this negotiation. And I should say, Richard never had a very low opinion of Sir Jeffrey. And he came back and said, I've solved it. All we need to do is add in Nothing in this legislation shall, I can't remember the legal phrase, abrogate or contradict or some fancy word, the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. And you'll be familiar, that was used in the 75 Waitangi Tribunal Act, but it was consistent with the Articles Treaty. This was just floating in the air. So this law professor, and very senior cabinet minister had negotiated that we would just insert this into the state-owned enterprises act that nothing would abrogate the principles of the treaty and richard says he asked 
Sir Geoffrey. He wasn't Sir Geoffrey then. What does that mean? And Sir Geoffrey said, this is the beauty of it. It's meaningless. That's <laughs> oh, yes. And, and, and Geoffrey Palmer had actually um, already consulted with Happy to Huhu up in Tufari Tour ah. and been told that they would, the iwi leaders would be happy if this phrase was used. And Geoffrey Palmer thinking, yes, I will take a phrase and I will just uh, allow it, I will consider it meaningless. Well, that is the beginning of an egregious. Um, egregious. Everything uh, flows from that. Yes, because after that, anyone can put any meaning they want to into this this word, these principles that acquired a capital P that became a thing all of themselves. And from then on, it was up for grabs. Let's and let's, I, let's say what these things mean. Yes. And Richard said to, to Jeffrey that he didn't think that words just sit in legislation without meaning. He said, if they don't have meaning, they'll be given a meaning. <laughs> and then as I understand it, Elizabeth, it was, Robin Cook, who came along and said, well, if Parliament won't articulate these principles, we will. Yes. And you see, at that point, Parliament should have said, no, mm. just do not do that. Parliament mm. uh, legislates. Parliament says what legislation means because it is authority. Once it's legislation is passed, legislation has meaning, it is, it is authority at that point. Mm. It is not for judges to take over no. democratic authority. And, of course, that's what, what happened. And the one I think that Simon Upton would have been referring to was the Resource Management Act, because he was the minister that oversaw that coming into law, but it was actually authored by Sir Geoffrey Palmer. Yeah, that would be, yes, that was the 1991. Yes, that would be right. And, um, you know, to play around with such an important word and for a lawyer to do it, I mean, a law professor. All, a law professor of all people should know that every word counts and every word placed in a context counts. Well, either he was played and isn't very bright or he wasn't played and he isn't, he is bright. He knew exactly what he was doing and just minimised it. Either are possible. Apparently, he came back from having gone up to meet Happy to Hugh, who came back very pleased with the outcome. Um, so I don't. We we don't know what his motives. No. Were. Well, nevertheless, the effect has been, as you describe it, a whole new treaty. Yeah, and the other thing is. Um, especially um, once the partnership principle became um, a holier-than-thou thing itself of sacred, <laughs> even though, of course, as we know, um, partnership is not part of the treaty, but it has become so. Once you say that you have two partners and they are um, they have the sacred accord between them, all this created, invented, principles treaty, then you have to start to define the two partners in a permanent, ongoing, timeless way. 
And that's where the term indigenous became really significant. Now, right up into into the 70s, even early 80s, people didn't use the word indigenous. No. It was a bit like, you know, the word ethnicity. Mm. In the 60s, people used the word race. Race was replaced by ethnicity from the 70s onwards. Um, and with and there's real significance to that, but I, I really want to talk about indigenous here. Indigenous was a word that was only really used in anthropology. It was, you know, quite a you know, it had a scientific meaning. But once it entered um public discourse and it came via the United Nations, and the United Nations established um an indigenous committee, um, and of course, it became the word indigenous became created a group, and of course, once you create a group, then the group will think, what are we? How do we define ourselves? What sort of power do we want? What sort of resources do we want? So, indigenous really took off in the nineteen eighties, and you mm. you heard people in New Zealand use it when a decade earlier they they didn't. So that became a way to create the two partners. I had always imagined when the UN was speaking about caring for Indigenous peoples, in my mind's eye, I was always picturing like an Amazon tribe who were running around with spears, unaware of the entire world. And we had become aware of Europeans approaching these tribes and wiping them out or making them desperately um, decimated because of novel diseases. And it was a tough one what to do with these literally indigenous tribes that were living a Stone Age lifestyle in the jungle. And how do you cope? And that was my understanding of what the UN initially was about. And and then it's become literally every Tom Dick and Harry. <laughs> yeah. It was actually it actually the word indigenous actually grew out of um uh, um a committee in the UN in the sixties looking at um workers' rights. Oh wow. And of course you there's there's um scholarship in anthropology which which sees um, the idea of indigenous as the people at the beginning of the modern period, four or five hundred years ago, beginning of industrialization and so on, you had many people throughout the world moving out of villages, down from the hills into the new uh, mm. industrial cities that were developing. And so you get a division at that point between those who have left and those who have stayed. Um, and over time, we now think of those who have stayed as um, indigenous. Okay. okay. But they, they are simply people who, in in the development of, of the modern world, um, took a different route. And in that sense, then, there are no, in that concept, like every Maori in New Zealand has joined the modern world. Well, every, I mean, all human beings have. Our, yes. The history of humanity is of us moving. We move yes. and then we settle for a time. We move again. And it's always in response to 
desperately wanting to improve our circumstances to enable us to live and to um, and for the lives of our descendants. That's the history of the world. And mm. so it's a history of settlers, of migrants, and that's why I would prefer, instead of us talking about um, New Zealand as being divided into Indigenous and non-Indigenous, I would rather we talk about settlers. So we see the first wave of settlers were those who came um, across the Pacific uh, and reached New Zealand in the 13th century. And since then, there was, you know, what's five, six hundred years, and then new waves of settlers. And so the people who came here in the 13th century are in a way no different from those who came last year. Mm. We are all people doing what humans have done for what? There's uh, a strange 500,000 years. <laughs> there's the other clever thing in all of this is to introduce the collectivist way of thinking. So the original treaty is very much about the individual, and that would be the philo political, philosophical thinking, the individual rights that each person enjoys. But as soon as you introduce this idea of two peoples, well, one people is a collective and the other people, and it's like they uh, have a single way of thinking. And we see this over and over and over. And, of course, then you need two people, a, a leader of each people telling us what they think. And so, and you'll hear Maori politicians say, my people, right? Which, again, is this collective thought, or Maori think this. Well, I would say tribal leaders because there are many people of Māori descent um, and of Māori identity who identify very strongly as Māori who do who are not tribalists. Mm. So I, that's that's why for me it's very important to talk about um, the political this political activism as being driven by by tribalists who are um, wanting to institute um, the tribe. As as the political category, and of course, then the tribe is is what will acquire not just resources, but if you're going to acquire economic resources, it's quite handy to have a lot of political power to go with them. Wow! But you can get more resources. You yeah. can hold on to what you've got. Plus, well, that's exactly freedom. what's happened, isn't it? So and water, for example. Yes, that's exactly what has happened. Yeah. It's been a amazingly fast thing where you accept um, a partnership you then have to consult with the partner which then becomes the tribal elite, goodness knows how they become the tribal elite you then have ministers of the crown consulting with these tribal leaders on matters of importance as though they are partners and then that just develops naturally into co-governance, where it's formalised. So the idea becomes the reality. Yes. Yeah. And but very it's not. It's not actually real. It's something we have allowed to happen. And whether you're Maori or uh, of European descent or settler, later settler descent, the entire system has disempowered you. So Maori are in the same circumstance as us. 
because the power is now residing with this tribal elite and the politicians who have the pleasure of negotiating with them, and we're left out of it. Yeah. Yes, well, I don't think in terms of us, I think in terms of here we have all these people in New Zealand who are citizens, who have all come here, you know, in these waves of settlement, all wanting the same thing for their descendants, you know, a prosperous, peaceful life. And here is a small group of people made up of, driven initially by a very small number. Uh, if you, uh, the Māori graduates of the 1950s, mm -hmm. their children, um, and then, of course, in more recent times, there are now many, many, I prefer to use the term tribal, not iwi, because once again, it's a matter of controlling language. And when we talk, if we use, if we're speaking English, which we are, then the word is tribe. And in English, tribe has a connotation of a kinship structure. So we're clear that we're talking about a kinship political structure. When that word is removed and replaced with a word from another language, then there is a process, it becomes mystified. It becomes, it acquires some sort of almost sacred meaning. Mm. Um, as though it has always existed. And this is this business of creating um, timelessness. So the impression is that the tribes speaking today on their own behalf are the direct inheritors of the tribes of the past. But no, that is not the case. The introduction of a completely new political system and a completely different type of society has meant that tradi the traditional world ended. I mean, there, is, there are some things We've all kept from, you know, our traditional ancestors because we value perhaps there might be cultural practices or customs. Can't think of many, actually. I mean, I think of most traditional, um, mm. well, I mean, culture is tyranny. People have moved from the traditional to the modern because it's a much better way to live. Yes, and given... To be a given, female in a traditional society, yes. I certainly wouldn't like to. And given a choice... Everyone wants to jump the fence to modernity. Yeah, yeah. Because it's wealthier, freer, mm -hmm. and more joyful. Yes. And just I the mean, fact that we live a lot longer, that, um, yeah. that we have been able to develop a political system, liberal democracy, with principles of freedom, that we have the political category, which is separate from, from our identity. So it doesn't matter what our identity is. We have the political category of citizen. So that's another serious problem that has occurred with identity politics, that people are encouraged to see themselves in terms of an identity, when in fact, our political category is that of citizen. That's where we meet in mm. the public space as citizens. We can with be what we want to in private. With equal rights. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And uh, if we don't have equal rights, it's inevitable that you have a tyranny. Mm. 
because someone's deciding who's got what rights. That's right, yes. Democracy is very difficult, and that's why it has to be, we have to safeguard it, we have to protect it, we have to, but we'll only protect it if we value it, and we'll only value it if we know what we are valuing. And what Mm. we are valuing is this entirely new political system that um, many of our ancestors fought for over centuries. Centuries. Blood and guts. Yeah, which enables us, you know, it doesn't matter what background you've got. It enables Mm. you to be free, to be a thinker. It's like the philosopher Immanuel Kant saying, you know, um, have the courage to he, he didn't just talk about the importance of reason, but he talked about, he said, have courage to use your own reason. And that was when rationality was married to democracy. Mm. So the ideas of the Enlightenment, ideas of a human being, that this human being can think. The next stage is if there is one human being, if this creature can think, therefore, this person, this creature can think about his or her destiny and can have control over his or her destiny. And that's what made democracy possible. But democracy is based first on accepting that the human being is a rational thinking person. And that's that key distinction. And again, talking about the language that you, you have pointed out to us, universalist thinking versus tribalist thinking is pivotal here. Now, the language has been the coup, hasn't it? Oh, gosh, yes. And I remember speaking to um, people who have become very powerful tribalists, um, speaking to them back in the 90s, and they made it very clear to me that it was their ambition, their tactic was to control language because they were people who understood the power of language. I mean, the tribalists have been enormously successful um, because they have known what to do and they've started by controlling language. And through controlling language, you control thought. The And, of course, we're in an age now, Elizabeth, where we have got extremely sloppy with language because we haven't adhered to the rules of good grammar. We haven't studied uh, Latin at school and the origins of correct usage and the importance of words. We've come along with the internet where everyone can tap, tap, tap away, as opposed to carefully crafting a letter or an argument or an essay. It's all just boom. And you notice it in the news. I find often a news article incomprehensible. I can't find out who did what to whom because it's sort of written so abstractly and poorly. And you compare that to letters written in the past, soldiers writing to their wives or to their mother, beautiful constructed letters, very clear, very precise, each word. So again, we've constructed a situation where, oh, apartheid is bad, 
we can't have this discrimination. This is terrible. And we oppose it. And we get rid of it. And then we seamlessly go to its opposite, or jump to it by saying, oh, we need equity. We need partnership. And with the clever use of words, we're setting up apartheid. Just in You're reverse. absolutely right. These words are just thrown thrown out there and put in any sort of order. And grammar is essential because it's grammar which constructs the logic of a statement. You mm. know, in any propositional statement, you have your subject, you have what it does, and you have what it does to whom or what. You have that basic logical pattern established in the grammar of a sentence. And um, once we stop requiring young people to understand that it's not just what they write, but they have to um, understand the structure of what they write, how it is organized, and that's what grammar means, Mm. Um, arrangement of words in Mm. a logical manner. Um, and you have to know about grammar to be able to have a look at what you've written and say, yes, I can see the logic of what I have asserted or claimed or proposed in the sentence. So, you know, I, I just w- want my students to close their devices, take out pen and paper and say, let the words that you are writing be linked to the speed at which you think them. Mm. And Not the speed were, at which you can type. That's right. And and worse still, um, when you start typing, you put the first letters in and then the word appears. Yes. When you have to think the word first and then write it down, and then you have to think the order of the word in the sentence, then you are controlling your thought. It's a wonderful thing to think of William Shakespeare or Charles Dickens writing a manuscript with a quill pen. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose Dickens sort of didn't really, uh, Shakespeare didn't quite write it down in that way, but Dickens. And he could only write at a certain speed. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't readily correct it. You know, he couldn't just backspace, cut and copy or cut and paste. And yet, the most beautiful words in the English language were put together. The most beautiful stories were told. And now everyone's an author, and it's garbage. And when you sit down with someone to understand why they think the way they do, they're unable to articulate it because they're unable to write and think clearly. Yeah. What I would really like, Rodney, oh, and I do hope this comes to pass, is I've um, I've developed um, the Curriculum Design Coherence Model. It's a model for designing the curriculum, mm. and it goes into, uh, goes right down to topic level. So you take a topic and use this model and start with a proposition. And the proposition has to be um, state the meaning of the topic that is will be taught later on, the meaning of the topic to be designed. And it has to follow a particular the grammar of any proposition. 
Um, so the verb becomes really important. What mm. am I claiming that this thing is? Um, so, uh, oh, I would absolutely love my curriculum design coherence model to be to be used to design a national curriculum right down to topic level. It's a huge amount of work, and it would require people who know their subjects really, really well, and then also know how to design the subject according to logical principles. Mm. Mm. So let's and, see what happens with that. And in that process of respect for language comes a respect for other people and their argument. Now, the other clever thing is how this agenda being pushed has done a remarkable job of not just defining the terms but of defining the abuse. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, when I say that tribalists have been enormously successful, I mean, all credit to them, they have. They have controlled yes. um, those who are doing it and those who are having it done to them. <laughs> and the likes of Paul Don Brash, who's trying to establish the original treaty and one law for all, can be denigrated endlessly as a racist, which of course, understanding language, understanding an argument, he's the exact opposite. Yeah. It's the people that are accusing him of being racist who are trying to defend a racist proposition. This is when extraordinary you, yes, achievement, is, Margaret. Yes. Well, when you separate a word from its meaning, then you can do anything with the word. You can make it mean whatever you want it to mean, and that's what's happened. And it's used in a forceful way mm. and in a powerful way to shut us all up. Yeah, The entitlement, the righteousness of it. Um, yes, you know, if you claim the moral high ground and if you say, if, if, if your claim is we we are on this moral high. We are right because our, we are pursuing social justice for a group of people who have been victimized. So that's another category that has been created, the yes. category of the victim. Yes, and the oppressor. Tell yes. me this, Margaret. Oh, sorry, Elizabeth. Um, tell me, you're saying this, Going back to the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, educated Maori, their children. Do you think this was some sort of long march through the institutions of a der derivation of Marxism and that they were the carriers of this dreadful ideology, unaware of? the significance and just sort of doing their best at the time with what they'd been taught? Or was it sort of knowingly sinister? I mean, that's what I can't figure out. You know, you, you've, was, you've been it around. Wasn't, it wasn't driven by Marxism at all. It, and as I say again, Rodney, it was not Māori who did it. It was a small group of, um, of families who... Um, and I'm thinking of people like um, 
uh, Winniata, um, Sid Mead, um, Loves, people who educated um, people who moved, who were university educated in, say, the 50s, and in the 60s um, were able to were able to link into the rise of uh, cultural culturalist ideology throughout the world when there was a big shift from understanding ourselves in terms of class to understanding ourselves in identity. Now, the small group of people were able to ride the wave at that time, and they acquired professorial positions in the universities. They were not Māori only. There were people okay. who um, identified as non-Māori, as Pākehā. They, they, and they referred to themselves in that way. And at that point, we see the development of the term Pākehā with a capital P. And mm. um, some of these, this very influential group claimed that term. So there was, there were those, the, this group of people who had important and influential positions in our universities and who were then able to influence officials um the uh, you would have witnessed this firsthand Elizabeth. yes i did yes a cultural mark marxism um was really another intellectual movement at the okay. same time and so it became a fellow traveler but really, we're looking at a group of people who, in the shift from class to culture, were able to carve out an area for themselves where they could acquire power and economic resources. And that area was to turn to the past and claim the inheritance of the past. They said, we are the inheritors of this past, this tribal past. But if you're going to claim that inheritance, then you have to um, establish the tribe as a going concern. And that's why we see retribalization really taking off from the late 70s. And this group um, could, could say, uh, you know, this is our inheritance. It has been taken from us. We are going to claim it back. And because in the wider society there had been the shift to um, cultural identity, um, you know, people studying their genealogies and so on right throughout the world, you know, people were really keen mm. on connecting to their pasts. They looked across and said, yeah, fine, this makes sense. Here is a group reclaiming the past. It's something we're all doing. We're no longer identifying as sort of working class people striving for improved conditions for ourselves. We are now identifying in these identity groups and claiming um, rights in terms of that that much smaller identity group. So yes, it was a small group of a retri. That's why I really insist on the term retribalists mm. because that's what this group of people. Um, whether or not they had Māori ancestry or not, we're doing. From re, it really took off in the seventies, but from the fifties and sixties, they had established themselves in the universities with the development of Māori studies departments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and anthropology and, had lost its way at that point. 
And their long-term agenda may well have been hazy, but each step of the way made them more important, gave them I more I don't know. It wasn't, ha- it wasn't hazy. It oh, was, okay. No, it was, it was very clear that wow. there was a group of people wanting to reassert um, um, reassert the tr- the the tribe and to be, um, you know, if you use the Marxist term, the vanguard of the proletariat. But in this case, wow. it was the chiefs of retribalization. Got it. So it was it was an intellectual movement that was fully understood by those doing it, and that's what's been so successful. Because My goodness, I mean, the strategy is so very impressive. Very impressive, a total, total coup, a total turning of universalist principles on the head, the inversion of our Westminster parliamentary democracy. Um, you And I sort of was half witnessing it and thinking, well, this will never take off because it is so dangerous and so stupid. And yet and here course, we are. When, yes. when you have um, a group who have established themselves as leaders, then, of course, they need a constituency. They need followers. And so retribalization from the 80s into the 90s was really about um, uh, encouraging people to identify with these newly established tribes, um, mm. tribes that would, were able to say, we we are connected to the past. This is what we were called in the past. This is what we had in the past. So it is certainly true to say that on one hand, yes, um, th- there was a tribal revival, but it was a revival for a different world. Completely different world. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, and, of course, we who enjoy and benefit from universalist living, the wealth, the freedom, the prosperity of it, we don't necessarily or usually understand what it's providing us. Mm. So you can be um, a university student wandering around enjoying all the fruits of the world in terms of food and accommodation and warmth, but totally unaware and oblivious to how amazing that all is compared to historical times. And how recent. And how recent. recent. Mm -hmm. And you can also be tinged with a guilt because here you are benefiting. And I used to think that before I learned your terms, I'd say embedded in Western civilization or embedded in universalist living is a sort of guilt that you've so profligate, so well off, relative, that you feel you must be despoiling nature in a dreadful way or ripping off some person, or and you try and assort your guilt by writing Pākehā with a capital P or, you know, going along, going along with these causes because it somehow frees you of that guilt that you feel that you've been And and yet it's actually a more specific guilt. You know, we are the generation um, of our parents had to fight wars. They 
had to live through a depression. Mm. Their parents were pioneers, and I'm talking about people who are both recent and previous settlers. You know, the late 19th century, a time of real development of the country in order to produce something for this prosperity. So suddenly you have a post-war generation who reap all the benefits. Yes. it's 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 the guilt is actually quite specific. It is tied to our parents and grandparents and great grandparents. We are very mm. aware that they created what we are enjoying, and so we want yes, yes, and and of course many for me, many became secularized. So there wasn't religion to um, provide a moral framework. So we created a new moral framework, which was one of social justice. Yes, how how amazing! It's great. It's it's amazing to see you bring it all together into this historical perspective and this coherence. There's a another thing that um, I observe about this tribal way of thinking compared to universalist thinking. As a universalist, your grandfather could have treated my grandfather rather poorly. Some way or another, tricked him or something. I would look upon you as having no responsibility for that, Mm. right? And this is this idea of the sins of the father. They don't follow the son. Or the daughter. And yet, with this retribalization, we don't just have a dispute following down seven generations, it is forever. And it goes back to the gods. So it has a mythological um, uh, quality to it, a timelessness. A, um, this is why it's, it's sort of danger of becoming a cult. It it has this sort of sacredness to it. And for anyone to speak against it, um, you are insulting not just, say, the the idea of retribalization and the people who are pursuing it, but you are insulting the very gods themselves who are being invoked with the, the within retribalization. Oh, my goodness, you're right. Mm-hmm. So and when that's, you're... of course, in, indigenous. I mean, indigenous is directly connected to the land and to the creation. So once again, there's that mythological framework um, placed right around this ideology. And no wonder it's difficult for people to criticize it, because if you criticize it, you are you are criticizing something holy, something sacred. So no wonder you're a <laughs> you're a wicked person. <laughs> and of course, this this is this madness we have now where building a bridge across a river offends the gods. Yeah, yeah. Which, to a universalist, we're very respectful of people's spiritual beliefs. But we don't let them impinge on society as a whole at great cost. You don't bring them into engineering. You don't have a no. New Zealand or advertising video, which the, the um, combines, walker in the sky, which does an appalling. Um, it conflates these two very different 
ways of understanding the world. And that's why that video is appalling. appalling. Here we have contemporary engineering, these enormous things being able to fly as a result of incredible science and physics and engineering and being equated to um the you know the gods um I know. I know. causing things to happen no you know science the causation understood in science is uh, the is physical properties physical processes net it's a naturalist approach to the world the supernaturalist approach where you start bringing in the idea that somehow there is a supernatural, a mythological causation going on, it is very dangerous for young people's thinking. Very and dangerous. That's what's happening in our schools with the um, with the uh, insertion of Maturanga Māori or any type of traditional knowledge as... Um, a way to think. Of course, we should study about traditional knowledge. Mm. So, in literature, in language studies, in um, and in history, say the history of um, of of how traditional people lived. Of course, this is part of who we are as humans. But to induct young people into thinking that causation has this um, vitalist this notion that there is some vital spirit, some force. I mean, that is just so anti-science. What we are doing is creating a generation of young people who will not be able to think scientifically. No, it's exactly right. And not even they will see you and myself and this conversation as immoral. Yes, yes, yes. And offensive. Yes. And to you and I, brought up in the universalist tradition, we're just talking. Yeah. We're having a debate. We're learning. We're discussing. Everything is. Everything should be spoken. Everything should be put out there into the sunlight so it can be defended and justified. And um, if you can't, in the end, you make a claim, Everyone should be able to make claims, to propose something, to assume mm -hmm. something, and someone else must be able to say, okay, you justify it. I disagree with it, and here are my reasons, mm -hmm. and let's look at the – you know, it's informed opinion, isn't it? And informed opinion is the justification. So we have unjustified opinion, and we have justified opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, everything I say – publicly, I say because I can justify it. Mm. And you're willing to be proved wrong. Yes, yes, of course. That's right. But it's only because I actually say it and justify it mm -hmm. that someone else can come along and say, ah, there's some, there's a hole in your justification. It but lacks logic here. The evidence you've used is not does not support it in the way you claimed. So it is only when you speak and you put the claim that someone else has the opportunity to interrogate it and maybe show that it is wrong. And, of course, and a, at that point, I would have to agree, and I would have to rethink my argument. But, of course, the tribalist doesn't have to do that 
because they can just dismiss you as being colonized, a dinosaur, an Uncle Tom, all those words, right? They don't actually engage with an argument because they don't believe in it. They're tribalists. They're, they're a cult. They're religious. And they're power hungry. Willie Jackson is my preeminent example because he is such, in his debate and discussion, is so thuggish. Which is um, who who can sort of verbally assault that other side, and you can't imagine him ever saying, "Oh, well, that's a good point." You know, I would have, I would find it very difficult to talk to Willie Jackson because he would throw words at me, and the words would all be jumbled, and they wouldn't have been arranged in a logical way. So I wouldn't know. Yeah. exactly what he was saying so i wouldn't be able to discuss the point because i wouldn't be able to find the point but as they say in modern parlance that's a feature not a bug <laughs> that's part of their power it is yes. i used to think it was like a word salad mm. uh, defining stupidity but what it is is a word salad and rhetoric that has given Willie and his ilk tyrannical power over the rest of us. And because of you say what's happened within the universities and now within the primary schools and the high schools, our institutions and organizations like our legacy media and our corporates go along with it. And so when you come to claw your way out of this, Elizabeth, it's not a matter of just reasserting the Articles Treaty because you have to go right back to your curriculum. Yeah, that's right. Something I'm very interested in nowadays is looking at these, um, uh, it's, it's known as um, time perception, how people, um, the psychological approach to time itself. And there are two different ways of understanding time. Mm. This spontaneous time perception, which is what we all have. It's part of our primary thinking where we, um, um, you know, our collective memory, so the collective memory of our family. Uh, and it's cyclic seasonal. All our traditional ancestors all had spontaneous time perception. Um, seasonal cyclic, social time. Is, we're probably able to go back as far as great-grandparents, and that's about it. Um, and then there is historical time perception, and that's a very modern way of thinking. And it's known in, in the literature as secondary thinking, secondary cognition. And it's a way of thinking about time in terms, in an objective way, in terms of causation and context. So you take yourself out of it and you study it as something, as an object separate from yourself and you look at uh, these facts and these, these events, these people happened at a certain 
time, what was the context of the time, what causes cause the actions, what did they then go on to cause to happen. So it's a very different way of understanding time. Now, the danger, and it's a huge danger, of the so-called refreshed curriculum, this new so-called New Zealand histories curriculum, can't bring myself to say the term histories, it's history, is that it is based on spontaneous time perception. So as well as young uh, children and young people being imbued in a non-scientific um, way of thinking, that will be reinforced by them being imbued in with spontaneous time perception. And that means they can be told the, mem the collective memory of the nation will be what we wanted to have happened, not what really happened. And, of course, we know even in our families we will select. Oh, yes. <laughs> there are some things that we will omit. For probably yes, and, and how poor your own memory of events oh, is. When you, when, yes. when, when you get talking to a sibling about some traumatic event, and you have it completely wrong as a yes. child, or even as an adult. You can have you can have two people. I mean, the police are well aware of this. Yeah. Two witnesses to a crime, and they have completely, genuinely, completely different views. You know, the next day, and you're right. This history, where it has been debated and discussed, and evidence collected, uh, is so significant. I can see what you're saying because you see it outside of yourself. Yeah. It's, it's a history that we collect evidence about. And so we know about 1066 because it's there's a tapestry. It's not what you wanted. No. It's not what you wanted to have happened. It's no. what actually did happen. And I'll add a writer to the best of our, our scholarship. And it must be scholarship that where there are verifiable, independent, verifiable sources. Yes. And we are always ready if new sources come uh, arrive, if there's new material, new information, then we will change that that historical knowledge. We will update it according to new yes. evidence. Um, yes. But it and is that takes you back to the that takes you back to the two treaties, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. Because the history, the actual history of the Articles Treaty, is of no interest. And yet. We cannot understand the 1840 history if we do not know the history. Those four, five decades of intertribal warfare that preceded yes. it, and also British history, the fact that Britain did yes. not want to colonise New Zealand. Did not want it. We did need to know the history of all the people who were involved. And then when we come to this invented principles treaty of the 1980s, once again, we need to know the history of it. Who were the people involved? What did they do? For example, Jeffrey Palmer, Hippie de Huyu, um, the uh, people who became professors of Maori studies um, in the 70s, um, the officials, and so on. We need to know all the, the people involved and what they did, and then what they said about what they did, and then mm. what others said about what they did. I mean, history... The scholarship of history is incredible. It's Yet, a beautiful thing. We have so few historians in this country. What we need in our universities is large 
history departments with yes. top-notch historians yes. um, who are dealing in facts. Yes. Facts and evidence. Yes. Tell me, Elizabeth, are you optimistic of the future? Oh, crikey. Um, oh, um, am I optimistic? Well, I suppose in a way I must be because I wouldn't keep writing and thinking about these things if I wasn't. Um, but I think retribalization, given that it's aligned to other communitarian um, movements, you know, the idea of the collective, um, is really pushing against the shift to the notion of the individual that we've seen over the last 200 years, mm. the very old communitarian um, way of being in the world is really mm. making a push to claim, um, you know, to come back, to, to um, defeat the basis of democracy, which is the notion of the individual, the human being who can think for him or herself. So I think there's a very um, deep existential value um, battle going on between two very different ways of us being human. Um, Fascinating because yeah. it's been long argued by philosophers that we have this continual war with our tribalist roots yeah yeah that it's imprinted in our dna that we're, we're this appeal of tribalism to us versus living in a modern world a universalist world where you have to accept responsibility and cock-ups and everything is hard science is hard History is hard because you've got to work at it and get the facts, and the facts don't just present themselves, whereas this tribal world is an easy world. Because you see you another, just... another another push for it is the this this um, um, emphasis on the notion of safety. Once again, that creates yes. children with a psychological need to be cared for, rather than yes. to, to learn to be the authors of their own destiny. Yes. It is very difficult to be a modern individual, and our education should be giving children the um the way of thinking which enables them to do it and we are not doing that at a very deep level i have been talking with professor elizabeth rata oh my goodness we started off talking about the two treaties and that was what we were going to talk about but i'm sorry i may have spoken too much listeners but we went into this conversation and what a tour de force Prof. Elizabeth Rata gave us in terms of insight and understanding because I'm sure listeners are like me. We are bewildered by it, absolutely bewildered by what our world has become and struggle to grasp it, and it's easy to get angry. And here we have Elizabeth Rata coming on our show who has been a first-hand witness in the Maori world and in the university world of what has happened and being a keen observer of it and able to dissect it, explain it, diagnose it, and actually empower us, that we gain our senses, Elizabeth, is it not? 
I certainly hope so. Yes. Yeah. Elizabeth, I, I'm sorry I dragged you a little bit off the articles, but it was a free-flowing conversation. But I feel as though we went deeper and wider into the malaise. And that's what we need as as people. We need to think and deeply, to talk um, expansively. It's what we need to do all the time. Well, thank you so much. I do hope you'll come on again because um, it's the highlight. You are the highlight, the, the wisdom and the insight. You can send me a text and at 2057, email me inbox at rallycheck. Dot radio that was Professor Elizabeth Rata. Oh my goodness, what a treasure! Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Um, we were blessed, we're truly blessed by the people we have amongst us and who will come on our show and talk to us and share their knowledge and their lifelong passion. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Politics Explained Back to Basics in the Political Sandpit with Rodney Hyde. And Tane Webster. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, Texas 2057, email inbox at rallycheck.radio. And it's Politics Explained, back to the basics and the political sandpit with Tane Webster. Tane, what questions have we got? Good morning, Rodney. So there's been a few questions emailed in asking about the, uh, the threat of a second election. So uh, is it Christopher Luxon, I believe, is making those saying that, that that could be a possibility? Uh, as far as I understand, it's an empty threat. There's never been a hung parliament in the history of MMP in New Zealand. Could you correct yep. me if I'm wrong? So You're right. that that means there's going to be some negotiations on on election night. What, what what do you think that'll be like? And what is that like? Well, I've been involved in a couple directly. Uh, in 2005, I tried to get a coalition together. My God, probably lucky I didn't succeed with. Don Brash, Peter Dunn, Tariana Turia, Winston Peters, and me tried to put a coalition together, and Winston pulled the plug, probably just as well. Um, but there you go. And then I was involved directly with uh, John Key, and I brought in the Mary Party, and then John Key did a sort of a separate deal with the Mary Party, although I, I was talking to them as well. So I had a bit of experience. It's very exciting because for us, the smaller party, it's the one time you have some power. But the idea of forcing another election is idle because the received wisdom politically is any political party forcing another general election is going to get hammered in the next election and the major party will be the beneficiary because it looks like you're trying to throw your weight around. So everyone knew that we had to make it work because the country had just been through a general election. It didn't want, within a couple of weeks, someone tossing their toys and saying, yeah, I can't work with him. Let's have another general election. Um, so there's a huge incentive to make it work. What is a real possibility uh, are the various arrangements that governments could run. So when you have a full coalition, you agree to a coalition uh, document and you have ministers, the small party has ministers and they're subject to cabinet responsibility for the decisions they're involved in. And that's like pretty stable. However, 
you could have a situation where, say, the ACT Party or New Zealand First. Yeah, I was going to ha- ask about that. ACT's been saying that confidence only, no supply. Is that is that the? Uh... It'll be probably supply only and no confidence. Ah. Um, so what happens is you can form a government with if you give supply, which basically means uh, providing the money for the budget. You'll vote for the budget no matter what. So on that basis, you could form a government. Uh, if you say we'll give you confidence votes, what that essentially means is that if there's a vote, do does this parliament have confidence that the government has the numbers? You say yes. No, it probably is confidence in most supply. And that means they can stagger on. But if you don't give supply, they have to negotiate with you to get a budget through no no national party with any sense would agree to that because they're held hostage then and of course even giving supply and confidence and doing what is called sitting on the cross benches so you can form a government you've got supply you've got confidence but then every piece of legislation that you want to do has to be negotiated with a smaller party. And, of course, you'll be extorted at every turn. Well, we'll give you this vote if you cut this budget. We'll give you this vote if you give us this vote. And so it wouldn't be stable. I can't see how a government in New Zealand would operate uh, with a party sitting on the cross benches. We did it. We did it. The ACT Party did it when Winston Peters uh, left Jenny Shipley. And we gave them supply, national supply and confidence. And we used it very responsibly, not because of our altruism, but of our self-interest, because it was a very fraught time. And we knew if we kicked up a fuss, we would be punished at the next election. And so we had to show some incredible responsibility as much as it irked us. We ended up voting for things that we didn't particularly like just to ensure a government. MMP is potentially an unstable system. Uh, as we may find out. So um, that's that's how that, that's in everyone's in, interests to form a deal. And um, I, I, I think if it can't be a national enact uh, government and New Zealand First is needed, um, I think it could be a little unstable and you won't get probably a full deal. Um, one or other party will be sitting on the cross benches and jacking the other the government around, which I think will be uncomfortable for the country because we like to think that a prime minister can lead, you know, um, and say, make a decision. You imagine a prime minister on the news and saying, well, look, I can't really make this decision. I have to consult. And you go off and consult with Winston Peters and David Seymour to try and make something happen. Very, very tough. We've never had a hung parliament. That is to say, not getting a result doesn't mean it wouldn't happen. But again, it's that oh, that uh, problem of the smaller party forcing the country into another general election. Uh, no one would like that. You'll be too young, but in 1996, in our first uh, MMP election, that was when I first got elected to parliament, and Winston Peters was in a position of well, one would say responsibility, and he had to choose between Labour and National. 
and they were all supplicating themselves to him. And he dragged it out, I think, from memory for six weeks. It was almost a constitutional crisis because it was just hell because no one knew what was going to happen. And then to everyone's surprise, including Helen Clark and the Labour Party, he chose Jim Bolger, who'd been attacking right through the election and formed a uh, national New Zealand first uh, government. He had something like 17 MPs at that time. And that just got off to a very bad start because everyone had assumed that Helen Clark had won with Winston and he chose national. And of course he did a similar thing in what was it, 2017, when he chose um, Jacinda Ardern. Everyone expected him, to, a lot of people expected him to choose uh, National. And ultimately, the prime, the would-be Prime Minister has to convince the Governor-General that he or she can govern. That's the test to form a government. So Helen Clark has to go to the Governor-General and says, here's my agreement with Mr. Peters and the ACT Party. And they have given us confidence supply, and then the governor general will swear in a government. It is him or her that has to be convinced because it is uh, the governor general that makes the decision that, we, yes, we have a government. Funny, eh? Mm -hmm. And we're very lucky. I think we've got a great system. I don't like MMP, but I do like the Westminster system. There we go. You're awesome. on now. Uh, Thank you, Tane. That was uh, politics explained back to the basics in the political sand part with uh, Tane Webster. Send us a text 2057 with your questions. Email us inbox at rallycheck.radio. I'm sure I'm not alone in wishing this election over. <laughs> <laughs> Three more days. <laughs> and then we'll get to the uh, we'll get to the thought business of forming a government. Oh my goodness. Could be interesting. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. How marvellous was that? Erica Harvey, my goodness, what an interesting life, what an interesting woman, what an amazing story, and how lucky are we? to have candidates of such calibre offering themselves up for our parliament, for our House of Representatives. Very lucky indeed. She'd make a wonderful MP. Also, Prof Elizabeth Rata, what an insight into seeing how one treaty of 1840 that was signed and about the articles was amazingly swapped for a second treaty all about principles, where it can be just made up as we go along, two separate treaties, and then the thinking and the pedagogy behind all of that, and the huge task we have, starting with schooling, to get ourselves back on track to a decent society. It's not just correcting a few policies it's actually about helping our children learn to think critically for themselves rather than just to be empty vessels with ideological claptrap poured in the top of their heads you're on rally check radio real talk with rodney hyde see you next week 
You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.